And welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis Roleplay Game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have a great show for you this week. In fact, we'll be interviewing Christopher Rithenbeck about his archetypal species supplement in Breaking the Mold, and we'll be discussing two overlapping skills that are very different in die casting. Uh, we'll also be tackling another of our archetypes in the furnace and, of course, answering some listener questions. For now, however, let me introduce you to the host with the most. It's GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? I'm Jack, man. <laughs> I'm Jack to Chris! <laughs> and why are you Jack? Are you just happy to be here? Uh, a big, uh, we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about it in announcements. I'm Jack because tickets are live for Gamer Nation Con 7. Woot. So That's very, very I'm cool. I'm pumped. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be inundated with questions about that, but we'll talk about that in a tick. So before we get on to all of that, should we talk about what's new in the Foundry? Well, I think so. we got some new and interesting products to discuss, so I think it's a good idea. I think it's time we get to Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, holy... You want to tell us about the uh, D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? You bet I can. Um, Are you getting enough narrative dice action? Do you want to listen to two amazing hosts and some of the best guests in the industry? Are you also a huge Star Wars fan? Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, then you must go and have a listen to the Order 66 podcast. Hosted by my companion here, GM Chris, along with GM Phil... The Order 66 podcast is the OG of Star Wars RPG goodness. Uh, In this latest episode, they spoke at length with lead developer Tim Huckleberry about allies and adversaries, answering heaps of listener questions about the product and an extensive discussion, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, about The Mandalorian. So go and check that out, and you can find this and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. Oh, you put my other podcast. Is the, the the podcast we talk about? <laughs> we well, have Thank to spread you. the love. <laughs> what? Well, it's appreciated. I I'm not complaining. It's wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of wonderful, though, I think it's time we open up the Foundry Vault and take a look at what's inside because we got a couple exciting releases uh, that have come out since our last show. Mm. Um, first up, it, it is it released like what a week ago. Yep, and it's already hit silver. I know, amazing. All right. It's amazing, and it is amazing, and this is Zinth- <laughs> um da- <laughs> Z- Damn you, Zumwalt! Um, Zinthrix's Guide to Magic, um, which is a crazy name with Z's and Y's and X's and only one apostrophe. Um, 
uh, <laughs> Zenithrix's Guide to Magic. It's a beginner's guide to magic from Scott Zumwalt. Mm. This is a fantastic mm. product. It has a host of ready-made spells for anyone who's having difficulty with magic. Spells of all kinds, from spells of all types. But the key thing is, is that all of this and the use of magic in the system, very topical to what the uh, last show uh, mm. uh, uh we had, yep. um, and and the one we're going to be doing next show as well, mm-hmm. um, is is how to use magic, and and all of it is kind of explained through the voice of uh, Zenithrix, uh, a very experienced elven wizard who gives their insight to the inner workings of magic. It's very cleverly written, very well done. Um, additionally, it's not just made for noobs. I mean, veterans of Genesis may find this really useful as kind of a new way of looking at the magic system, explaining it to other players, um, as well as making use of two brand new spells that Scott puts in there. The mind spell and the move spell. Mm. Um, and it's accompanying magic skill, psychic. Mm. Um, also included are guidelines to create custom magic implements and clarifications of many common problems and complaints with magic. And it is $2.95, meaning it is a must have for every GM who is running a game with magic and for everyone who is playing a magic user. Indeed. Goodbye. Go check it's it's great, and there is a reason why I gave you that to read out, Chris, because there's no way in the world after the issues that I've had with certain other uh, special guests that we've had in the past, because um, I, I just can't get my tongue around any of that. But anyway, <laughs> so next up um, is a new product from a new author, David Morris, of Mount Ogden Gaming Company with his Monstrum Encyclopedia. Now, this is somewhat small supplement, only being 12 pages but it gives a few exciting things inside. Now, the first is a knowledge table. This is right from page one. There's a knowledge table explaining what players might know when making a knowledge check with a specific creature, which I thought was really unique. It's something that we've not actually seen before. Um, It then goes further into detailing four new creatures, including their full stance along with, and this is the really cool part, uh, a one-page adventure seed, Uh, to use the creature in. It also explains at length the creature's ecology and their abilities and their tactics. And additionally, and this is a lot to get in 12 pages, um, yes, there's more, uh, the product will be updated by David regularly. So it's the purchase that keeps on giving, basically. Um, and at an, only a dollar ninety five, why wouldn't you? That's the key thing. Like, um, he's pretty much said he's like, listen, it's a buck ninety five, but I'm going to keep adding to this. I'm going to keep adding to it. I'm going to keep adding to it and releasing new versions. So it's almost like buying a book that grows. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Mm, indeed. All good stuff. And we also happen to know, don't we, Huli, there are several more products in the works soon to be released. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are. So you can find these and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And of course, while you are searching the interwebs, don't forget FFG's Genesis Foundry Spotlight. Now, Chris, I believe there's something else that we need to talk about before we go any further. Oh, yeah. I did kind of tease it before. Um, So, yeah, we we talked about this a little bit uh, in our last episode, but the tickets for Gamer Nation Con 007, (laughs) licensed to con, are live. Um, uh, Badge sales went live this morning. Um, We've already sold um, out. We've already sold out a third of our tickets. (laughs) Holy dooly. <laughs> yeah. 
um, which is great. Um, it, it's absolutely great. Uh, and we're, we're, we're truly thrilled, but listen, listeners, guys, um, we talked about gamer nation con before. If you want to come to gamer nation con, it is one of the cheapest conventions you will ever come to. And we're going to be there. It's the D 20 radio extended family. If you've never been before, this is a chance to meet us, to game with us, to find a bunch of like-minded, really great gamers in a really fun venue. Um, I, I promise you won't regret it. And, uh, Hooli is mm. actually running some specialty games at this convention as in addition to serving as one of the convention marshals. Mm. Um, and we actually have a special badge, like to get a guaranteed seat at your table. Um, there are currently at the time of recording, what, two spots left, I think. Wow. That's nuts. Um, <laughs> just two, your special game. Um, but aside from that, I know you're going to be running a boatload of other events during the convention as well. Absolutely. And just as a bit of a teaser, the, uh, the event that I'm going to be running is your mission, should you choose to accept it, using Genesis. So I'm really looking forward to that. The impossible mission force. <laughs> It's called the Impossible Mission Force, really? <laughs> what? That's what IMF stands for? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Is Alec Baldwin going to be in it? I don't know. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't do a very good Alec Baldwin, but, uh, but yes. May I was mainly looking at, um, uh, you know, using the, uh, the 90s uh, version of the show. Uh, but then again, I'm a big fan of, look, I'm not afraid to admit it. I like Tom Cruise. I don't like him as a person, but I like him. <laughs> but I like him as an actor. I think all the stuff that he does is pretty he's good. He's not a bad person. He's just got a weird Scientology thing. <laughs> yeah, but he's, anyway, he's a very nice guy. Mm, obviously. So, Chris, where can people find out more about uh, Game and Age Con 007? Um, uh, where to get tickets and things like that? Well, sure. The easiest thing to do is to go to GamerNationCon.com. Um, the front page has a lot of details as well as links to the ticketing site. Um, or you can just go to our ticketing site, which is tabletop.events. Uh, you can do a search for Gamer Nation Con 007. Um, and there you'll find a front page with all kinds of juicy details, including the details we didn't mention on our special guest of honor this oh, coming yeah. year for Con, Mr. Tim Huckleberry, whom we've obviously had on this very show. Um, Obviously, sort of the the, the brain behind uh, the Genesis Foundry, and he's going to be on hand running some very very special Genesis games, um, as well as doing a wonderful session uh, seminar. So, mm. really looking forward to that. Absolutely, Tim's a great guy. I know that we've had him on the show before, um, and uh, I know that you've just recently had him on uh, your show, Chris. So, yeah, yeah, we had Huck on just this past week. Yep, yep, a good guy. I've worked with him before as well. So, um, yeah, good guy. So yeah, really looking forward to Gamination Con. I've been there. What is this? Will this will be my fourth year? I think this will be, this will be your fourth year. Wow! And I felt as I, I basically felt like a, a family member almost straight away at um, at the show. So um, so yeah, get on to uh, on to uh, the website. Grab a badge. It's not all that expensive, and it's an absolutely fantastic con to go to. And you'll get to meet a whole heap of people, get to meet friends, and become part of the Game and Action Con family. So, yeah, check yeah. it out. Seriously, sixty-five bucks for a four-day badge—you can't beat it. Mm, absolutely, free events you can't go wrong. No, that's but really, right. as exciting as this conversation mm. is, I think some more exciting news that we need to reveal for the very first time. Well, we do. Now, for a while now, we've been hitting a, a few things going on in the background for The Forge, and I think it's time to pull back the curtain and reveal at least one of them. Super exciting. Lay it on me. 
Okay, so the aim of the Forge podcast is to encourage everyone to uh, to generate compelling stories together, build amazing settings, and impart our knowledge um, and that to others uh, on how to make their settings publishable in the Genesis Foundry. Now, even if you don't want to create publishable content, though, that's okay. Uh, we continue to provide you with an in-depth look at the rules of the game by dissecting every aspect and to help you use them as a framework for your own creations. Um, we will always keep on answering your games and rules questions and give you some tips for running and playing in the Genesis RPG. But that's not what we're all about. We're also here to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in helping others create content. Now, between Chris and I, we've got a lot of experience to impart, and we want to help you achieve whatever aspirations that, that you want to achieve. Now, this goal of offering a helping hand is something at the heart of, of what we do and the heart of our community. And we hope to use the Forge to expand our horizons, promote this community even more, and, and introduce new people to our hobby. We basically want to, we want to teach people, we want to learn from others in the community and promote your achievements. Now, the community allows us to bring you new, exciting, and original content within our podcast and via our various social media sources. Most importantly, you have a chance to be heard, whether it be letting us know what you want us to talk about on the show or to engage with us directly with questions about your game or to offer your advice about your aspirations. However, to build that community, we need your help. Mm, well, Huli, how can people help us? Well, it's pretty simple. For as little as $2 per month, less than a cup of coffee or an energy drink, you can be a direct part of the Forge community by becoming a Patreon supporter. Aha! We are launching a Patreon, folks, with some pretty cool rewards. Mm. Uh, each tier of the Patreon is going to receive access to our community Discord server, which will be exclusive to our Patreon members, allowing you to communicate directly with other like-minded players and GMs who are very passionate about building this Genesis community. Um, most importantly, though, you will have direct access, direct access to us, the hosts. Absolutely. Now, our higher tiers gain access to priority questioning when your questions go to the top of the queue. Uh, for inclusion in our Under the Hammer segment. And the higher the tier that you have, uh, the higher the priority. Now, the coolest part of all this, though, and the one I'm most excited about, <laughs> is the super big event that we are planning, that we're going to be announcing for the first time right now, right here, and is tied to our Patreon community. Yep. Do you want to tell the listeners about it, Huli? Yeah, I, I'm so excited about this, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing idea, and hopefully everybody loves it as well. So next year, we're going to be launching the Forge Awards. Now, we'll be doing this on a special awards episode to be held just before Gen Con next year, where our supporters get to vote on their favorite products released during that year. Even better is that winners get to place their winning category icon on their products on the Foundry. We'll also have some special categories uh, voted through peer review as well. Cool. It's so <laughs> cool. I mean, you know, this is this is our version of the People's Choice Award, our yep. version of the Oscars, our version of the Emmys <laughs> or the Origins Awards. But it's Genesis focused. Yep. It's Foundry focused. It's those of us who love this community and love this content content and know what it's about hmm. putting our weight, our voices and our votes behind that to recognize those creators out there that have really done amazing things to add to the hobby, 
add to this game because there's some pretty amazing stuff that's just come out in the last four months and it deserves recognition. Absolutely. It absolutely does. Yeah. Of course, with any project, there's a few other things, uh, some of our other plans we need to kind of keep under some wraps. But as a sneak peek, we plan to have several live plays, crossovers with other important podcasts, and even opportunities for you to act as a guest host on this very show. But we'll be revealing more on that in coming months. Now, obviously, we wish we could do this under our own steam, but podcasting can be an expensive exercise with hosting fees, subscriptions to editing software, etc., etc. So if you are able to help us out to continue providing you with news, reviews, interviews, and all manner of gaming shenanigans uh, concerning the Genesis RPG and the Genesis Foundry, then please consider pledging and being part of this community. Where can they do that, Huli? Well, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis, so nothing that people already don't know. Um, or you can search Patreon using the name of the show. There, they're going to find plenty of details about what we do already on the show, uh, what our goals are, and the various tiers that are going to be available. Awesome. And obviously, guys, we're going to post more info, including links to the Patreon on our various social media pages. Absolutely, we will. So just remember, patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. All right, Chris, so all of this talk about fun stuff we'll be doing over the next few months has made me a little bit peckish for some delectable rules discussions. What do you say? Well, then, if you're peckish, it sounds like it's time for a heaping helping of warm, salty, slightly tangy, mm. die-casting. Mm. Die-casting. The Forge Podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table. And the Genesis RPG provides us with a powerful set of tools to do that, specifically through skills and talents. The diecasting segment is our semi-regular segment about closely examining individual skills and talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. So last episode, we took a look at the basic military training talent and how you can create interesting talents that provide new career skills. Tonight, however, we're going to be turning our attention back to skills themselves, specifically two skills that are often interchangeable during play but are still quite different and are often misused and a little confusing under certain <laughs> circumstances. Apparently. <laughs> and those two skills are athletics and coordination. Now, this is a dilemma that is going, uh, it's been going on since Star Wars, and it's an issue that perplexes many GMs and players alike. Which of these two skills do you use? Or do you use both? So tonight, we're going to clear up this question once and for all. Mm -hmm. And we're going to introduce a couple new, uh, I don't know, maybe homebrew options for mm. some new skill usage. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Why, why am I talking like this? I'm I don't know. Quite sure. uh, <laughs> all right. So as we do, let's talk about the basics first. Let's get yep. the core rules, the raw, under the table, uh, out from under the table. Let's put it on the table. We'll slap it down. Show it off to everybody. Um, like we do. And, uh, uh, these, these two skills, man, athletics and coordination. Talk to me about them. I mean, athletics, what are we, what are we looking at here? All right, so the athletic skill determines how well your character can, you know, ski down a, a treacherous mountain, climb a cliff face, swim across a raging river, or leap across a chasm. Um, the athletic skill serves as a measure of a character's overall fitness and, and physical conditioning. Those who actively engage in a, you know, a regime of physical training, such as um, you know, people with a military background, athletes, things like that, 
um, even some survivalists are the most likely to have the athletic skill as a career skill and will use that uh, in their their day-to-day character um, expansion. This is a skill that's also recommended to be used in just about every setting. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the core rulebook also gives us some things that you know, like some good examples you could use it for. It's definitely some things you should not use it for. Mm. Um, you know, you and, and some of the specific examples it calls out in terms of when you should use this is uh, climbing, climbing up or down a structure, yep. uh, particularly when the climb is tricky or there's a, a long drop to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, swimming, especially mm-hmm. in difficult or specifically in difficult conditions. Yep. Um, high winds, waves, tides, currents. Um, and also jumping, as you kind of pointed out earlier, either, either vertically or horizontally, leaping across a deep chasm um, or, or trying to jump up and grab a, a fire escape to get away from an angry dog um, or, or a, a stormtrooper wielding a thermal detonator. <laughs> that would think you think that would help you. Um, <laughs> there are all situations where your character needs to make an athletics check. Yep. Um, also, um, they call out in the core rulebook, your character attempts to run for an extended period of time, mm. um, which surprised me because that's also referenced in resilience mm. and there's a lot of crossover here, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. <laughs> when, when should you use this skill though? All right. So the first thing that the rules point out is that, uh, something that we talk about all the time on the podcast in, in so far as that you don't have to make a check for every single time that you, you do something. There are going to be situations where you don't need to make a check. And athletics is probably the best example that they say this. And they say that your character attempts an activity without any chances of failure. Um, so if there is no chance of failure, so if you're you know going for a swim on a calm day, as it says, or you're, you know, you're, you're doing an early morning jog, or you're jumping over a small log or something like that, you don't need to bother making a check. There's no point to it. It slows down play. And this is just one of those examples in the rulebook that they actually highlight that. So that's, that's where they say that you don't make an athletics check. Um, but w- an area that, um, that definitely it can't be used is when a character attempts a physical activity that relies more on hand-eye coordination um, or, or general sort of agility or dexterity uh, rather than straight strength. So that's going to be in something like parkour or free running, you know, swinging on a rope, you know, doing it um, Tarzan style or something like that. That is more of a coordination role rather than athletics. Now, already we can see that the, that even the rules are showing that there's a clear difference between the two. However, let's take a look at, firstly, about who can who can get the athletic skill uh, under their career. Yeah, and obviously anyone can take ranks in it, but if you're looking for those cheap career skill list ranks, yeah. in the core rulebook, we got the druid, the explorer, the knight, the soldier, and the trades person, mm. which makes perfect sense. Yep, climbing that scaffolding. <laughs> for example, mm-hmm. in Realms of Terranoth, we have the Disciple, which I found that was quite interesting. Yeah, uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, we have the Courier, which makes total sense. Uh, they are the uh, the runners in the physical world, uh, the Roughneck and the Soldier. So again, we're talking about people who are ex-military. So it certainly makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Now, when we move on to coordination specifically. Hmm. And it's worth noting, uh, uh, you guys, if you're following along in your storybooks at home, coordination is on page 59. And if you uh, want to find athletics, you'll find it on page 58. Mm. 
the coordination skill, you know, we've already kind of hinted at when talking about what athletics isn't. It's it's hand-eye coordination. It's general agility. It's the ability to, to stay stable when you're on unsteady surfaces, to squeeze or crawl through narrow openings, um, or even land safely after a large fall. Hmm. Um, things that require a sense of balance, uh, flexibility, um, all of which is represented by the coordination skill. A coordination ultimately serves as a measure of a character's flexibility, their sure-footedness, their agility, and their hand-eye coordination. Mm. And it's also recommended to be used in all settings. Yep. But what, what can we what can we use it for? What are some of the good examples we see in the rules? Well, one of the things that uh, I suggest before, you know, trying to swing backwards and forwards on a rope or, or rappel down a structure. Now, this is one that you can say that it, it's a little bit of both. But they're quite specific in saying that you repel down a structure, which means that there is no strength that's required to climb up the rope. It's a lot more about coordination, so that makes total sense. We've got walking across a narrow surface while trying to keep balance. Uh, Again, you're talking about balance, so it's more about your dexterity. Attempting to squeeze into a tiny or a cramped space, such as a crawl space, sewer pipe, you know, air duct, if you're a big lover of, uh, of Die Hard, which aren't we all, when a character falls um, and they need to try to slow the rate of their descent or to, uh, to land safely, you know, they're, they're, and there are some big rules, and we'll go into this later on, where it's specifically talking about how to use coordination to, uh, to save yourself. But there's an interesting point there. We'll get to that in a moment. The other one, which is quite interesting, is needs to escape from physical restraints. Again, there's something else that we'll talk about shortly. Actually, probably this is a good time to do it. When we look at equipment, one piece of equipment that is, that, um, is in, in Shadow of the Beanstalk has a, a difficulty for athletics as well as coordination. But um, the athletics is a lot harder like it's it's basically it's a formidable check and the coordination it's only a daunting check still pretty high checks uh but uh, you know just to to show the difference between that yes you can use both of them in certain scenarios but one might be less difficult than the other this goes back to that that one major differentiation point between the two that we can really highlight now mm. the reason that particular piece of gear has both listed for for escape purposes is because coordination represents you know wiggling your way out of it mm. okay using using coordination or contortion to to slip out of that binding whereas athletics literally means breaking it with your strength <laughs> um it's 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 shimmying out of your ropes or bar, or flat out breaking the ropes yeah. and in most cases when it comes to physical restraints coordination is going to be a lot easier to accomplish yeah absolutely <laughs> because again most most uh, most restraints are designed not to be broken mm. so for when the, the coordination skill isn't used though um I, again we'll, we'll go back to the climbing up and down a rope thing for the most part if you don't have a harness you're basically using your strength to be able to climb up um, so uh, coordination is not appropriate in this sort of circumstance. It's going to be athletics. Um, so the the other example that the book gives is, is another one to, to highlight that you don't always need to make a check. So in this case, the, the character falls from a short height or onto something soft enough that they won't suffer any sort of damage uh, when they land or a similar situation where there's real no consequences of failure. 
So again, don't force people to make dice rolls unless it's absolutely necessary or there is a chance of failure. Otherwise, just move on with the story. Exactly. And then very quickly, you know, in terms of, of those careers that get coordination uh, from the core rulebook, we have the Druid, again, you know, mm. um, which has some ver- a very diverse skills, skill set, yeah, to be perfectly absolutely. honest. The Entertainer, duh. Uh, <laughs> the, ex- the Explorer, and of course, the Scoundrel. Yeah. And the Scoundrel also um, appears in Realms of Terranoth as well. And then for Shadow of the Beanstalk, we have the Con Artist, again, sort of a bit more of a scoundrel type person. Uh, and again, the Courier. Who uh, who gets both? Yeah. Now there is a fundamental distinction between these two skills, and we're 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 coming to that, but we're kind of setting the stage, laying the foundation, paving <laughs> it out in terms of the core raw right now. The rules is written, yeah. and I do think it's important to talk uh, maybe briefly, Huli, about th- there are some very specific mentions um, in the rules. One of which we've talked about about additional usage uh, or specific usage for athletics and coordination. Mm. Absolutely. They're in the core book. Yeah. So we've got quite a few of them, so we'll go through each of them because some of them um, are often forgotten. So the first one is when attempting to lift something or someone, and this is on page 85. Um, Now, it's an easy base difficulty plus one difficulty per encumbrance level over. So that's one thing that, that is specifically athletics. Um, another one is being ensnared, which is on page um, 87 under the uh, condition ensnare, uh, where you need to make a hard check. Uh, athletics is also used when swimming through difficult bodies of water, like rapids or a churning ocean, uh, and that's on page 111. Um, under additional vehicle actions, we've got manual repairs under page 229, where a character makes a hard check to do uh, further repairs if they don't have the mechanics skill. And lastly, uh, athletics is used to put out fires in vehicles, uh, which is on page 230. But what about coordination? Well, okay, so the, the specific call-outs for coordination. Um, so, uh, you, you know, if athletics is used to put out a fire in a vehicle, mm. um, coordination is used to put out a fire when it's you. Um, <laughs> stop, drop, and roll, page 87. Yep. Um, um, additionally, uh, gravity effects of various kinds are governed by coordination, page 110. Mm. Um, and then we get to a few things where both skills are actually called out. Mm. Um, uh, falling, specifically on page 112, make an average check. Mm. Um, for each uncancelled success, you remove one wound. For each uncancelled advantage, you remove one strain from the damage taken. Mm. And at least per the rules as written, that you can use both coordination and athletics for that. Yeah, that's right. Additionally, the same goes for moving through impassable terrain. Um, page 110 you can you can use either and even some of the ones you went like i know we're going to get into house ruling is in a bit but i mean honestly Huli, if, if a player came to you and they said i'm ensnared i want to use coordination to get out of it would you stop them no i wouldn't and, uh, and this goes down to one of our sort of rules of thumb i guess without actually listing them is that if a player really wants to use a skill and they can they can come up with some sort of reason why. And this doesn't necessarily just apply to athletics and coordination. It can be anything. If they can come up with a legitimate reason why and they've actually put some thought into it and it sounds cool, let it happen. But make sure that you're increasing the difficulty because there's obviously a preferred skill of to do some particular thing, but then there might be secondary skills. Now, this is something that Shadowrun did years ago. 
uh, where you had secondary skills to do certain things. But, yeah, higher difficulty and the same process applies here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and this kind of leads us into really talking about what differentiates these skills. But, you know, we've talked about the core rules. Are there any talents, though, before we get there? I mean, I mean, finishing up this kind of core rules, rules as written discussion. Hmm. Are there any talents that use either of these skills? Surprisingly, there isn't. There is only, well, technically speaking, there's only one. And that's from Shadow of the Beanstalk. Uh, and it uses coordination. So there aren't any that uh, that use athletics. Now, that um, that talent is called knockout punch. Um, and all that it's using coordination for is whatever ranks you have in coordination, that's how much your stun value is um, because your any sort of um, brawl check basically gets the stun setting. Um, and so what I think it's two plus your ranks in coordination is what that value is. I hear you. I hear you. So this leads us into talking about what – why is differentiating these two skills really important? Because the, the, the we, we've seen there's a little bit of overlapping usage. Mm. There's some clear distinctive usage. But why even have two separate skills for this? There's some very good, very important reasons. Yeah. Well, the first is that, that obviously one is based on agility, Uli, and, and one is based on brawn. That, <laughs> okay? That's the one that makes the most sense, yes. <laughs> makes the most sense. And and honestly, the thing is, some pl- most players are going to spend points in one and not the other. Yeah. If you if you let these two skills be too interchangeable, you are technically penalizing players who spend points in both. Now, the reason players put points in one and not the other is because they the players tend to have a particular combative focus, either melee yeah. or ranged. Yeah. But what's intriguing to me, and I want to bring this up now because we're going to come back to it again and again, and it comes up every time we have these arguments at the play table mm. around coordination versus athletics. People say, you know, uh, you know, climbing a rope. Mm. Okay, well that's that's athletics. It takes strength. Okay, well yeah, but but gymnasts climb rope all the time, and that's all about coordination. Okay, when you try to compare these skills and their uses and the player characters who use them mm. to quote unquote real world people, mm-hmm. you're you're commonly going to come across and compare yourself to athletes. Okay. Mm. You realize that when you're dealing with an athlete, most sport players, okay, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, they are not going to be either agility or brawn. Mm -hmm. An athlete is really going to be developing both. And if they were an actual character in a game, they would be putting points very heavily into both athletics and coordination. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, if you're if you're a footballer. You know, and, and and honestly, if you want to send this this discussion f- forward, um, resilience too. Okay, mm. you know, if if you're a footballer, you know, resilience and coordination are going to be your bread and butter. But you're going to have athletic ranks. You're going to have athletic ability. If you're an American footballer or a rugby player, you better believe th- those guys are probably at equal ranks when it comes to athletics and coordination. Mm. All right, mm. not to mention resilience. Um, and the same goes for a gymnast. You know, you, but you just kind of got to keep that in mind. If you look at somebody who's like a power lifter or or a strong man, that's going to be that's going to be athletics and probably some resilience. Mm. If you look at somebody who is a parkour, you know, professional or a pre or a free runner, that's going to be probably coordination and resilience as your big daddies. Mm. But they're still going to have those two. You know, most athletes that you think of are going to have ranks in both of these skills. So just because they may have a particular focus on one in your in your game mind doesn't mean they're not going to have ranks in it and that when you see a parkour expert able to scale a wall 
which is athletics, mm. there's not, they very well could be using athletics. Mm. So just think about that. Yeah. Because, I mean, you when you start comparing real-world athletes, no one knows what their skill ranks are because skill ranks are a game mechanic. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you don't know what skills that they're using to, to do that. You know gamers, and we this is what we do. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's fun. It's fun to do it. Yeah, I, I think I I think the point that we're we're trying to remember hmm. is that there's always going to be a crossover here. Yeah, and and if you're trying to compare these two skills to real world ability, understand that the real world icons that you're comparing this skill usage to are likely using both skills. Yeah, yeah, depending on the situation. So. Another point that, that has come up a few times for me when players uh, are asked to make some type of check, and let's say it's a, it's a resilience and they ask for a boost eye because they have some ranks and coordination. What? Should you allow that to happen? I've had this question, so I'm, I'm going to ask it. Um, depending on the scenario, so rather than going, I'm going to use coordination, but I've got um, points in a skill that isn't either of these two things, would it be possible to add a boost eye? The short answer is to ask them how that applies and if they can justify it and then if they can, then allow it with a huge increased difficulty. You know, when you're talking about the difference between athletics and coordination, they're very similar. So you might be looking at one, maybe two. But if they're trying to use another skill completely that to them makes sense and they can try to justify it, sure, allow it, but increase the difficulty by two or more. Uh, with potentially adding setback dice in, into the equation. And that's a way that, yes, you can, but. And that's the, the aim of the system. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, you know, yeah, yes and is always the case. I understand what you're getting at now, the idea that they're asking for a skill substitution, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And, and, you, and you can, you know, it's yes, yes, if it makes sense, yes, and mm. it's going to be a lot more difficult. Yep. Now, a good example of this in the Huli that you mentioned a moment ago was uh, there's that piece of gear in uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk mm. that used both skills to escape from it, but it has separate difficulties. What What is that gear? It's called a snap lock. Um, it's on page 97 for those following on at home in the Shadow of the Beanstalk rulebook. And what were the, I mean, what were the difficulties associated with that? So the for athletics, um, it's formidable. So that's five purple dice. Um, and for coordination, it's it's daunting and only four purple dice. I mean, they're huge difficulties. But uh, when we start looking at, at this particular piece of equipment, we really start looking at, well, yes, they, you know, even FFG can see that there is similarity between the two, but one is more appropriate than the other. And in this case, they've seen coordination being the most appropriate and they've seen athletics it's still possible, but it's going to be a higher difficulty. Mm, interesting. Hey, while we're on the topic of gear, I'm just mm. going to ask, is there any other gear that has been in any of the published materials yet that relates to either one of these skills? Look, I looked all the way through all of the three books thus far, and the only one that I can find is climbing gear, which is interesting within itself, and it really highlights the fact that when you're climbing, you are using athletics. Uh, so it says that uh, when your character uses climbing gear, they remove a setback die from any athletics checks they make to climb something. Mm. And that's the only one that uses those two skills. I was quite surprised. I was expecting a lot more, but there wasn't. Uh, interesting. Interesting. 
was an interesting aside. Okay, so Huli, now that we've 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 talked about both these skills and we've kind of examined their ins and outs and their usage and really the differentiation that's there, hmm. when it comes to to players and GMs who are using these in their games, can we distill this down into a couple easy rules of thumb? You kind of hinted at one earlier, but yeah. can we can we can we distill it? I reckon we can. So, rule of thumb number one: if what you're doing requires strength or fortitude, use athletics. If what you're doing requires agility or dexterity, use coordination. It's pretty simple. Um, The second rule of thumb uh, is when you use both, consider increasing the difficulty of the skill least appropriate, depending on the situation. And that's pretty much all that you need to know. Apply those two rules and we're good. Now, the only thing to add here, however, is that um, we here at The Forge are all about, um, you know, how developers can use the knowledge that we're imparting in their own settings. Now, we have one way, uh, and we'll get on to that in a second, but um, another way uh, is to remember that when you create equipment uh, that uses these skills or highlights check that is required during an adventure, Take into consideration what skills are most appropriate uh, with the check and which aren't. Now, if you feel that crossing the stream can be done two different ways, you know, like one using athletics to swim across the river and the other via some slippery pipe that spans the river uh, where they can use coordination, make sure to mention both separately. However... If your scenario can be completed using two different skills, like athletics and coordination, list the difficulties together. Uh, You may then also wish to mention other skills that may be appropriate, like survival or vigilance, or whatever other skills you feel are appropriate to make the check. Um, Just mention that it's going to be a greater difficulty. Now, this may seem like really basic stuff. But these are the things that uh, the professional writers miss uh, from time to time and can certainly make that adventure, NPC, um, special ability or gear that much easier for the GM or the person who purchased your product uh, to use said product. So, yeah. Okay. So, now we're good. Good and golden. (laughs) Now, Uli. Hmm. I'm not fine just being good and golden. Right. <laughs> I want to be I want to be good and platinum. Right. So do we have any non-standard uses for uh coordination and athletics that maybe uh, an enterprising game master or player uh might use or suggest? Well, look, there aren't many non-raw ways to use either of these two skills, as the two skills pretty much cover everything because of their overlapping nature. But I'm sure that there are definitely some, and I know that we've talked about um, uh, a little bit of it, but when you you want uh, to use it in a non-raw fashion, there's one thing that you can always do, and you can create it for your own settings, and that's talents. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there's uh, there's only one talent that looks at these two skills, and even then, it's only coordination. So let's look at a couple of talents that we created based uh, very much in the ways of, of Jackie Chan and Black Widow and John Wick and, and a slew of other modern action heroes, particularly with the way they used improvised weapons. So, Chris, yes. do you want to take us through the first one? 
Yes, yes, yes. So we, we built this pair of talents, and I got to talk about this. Fully and I kind of designed this together, and and definitely inspired by by those action heroes that you said. But but again, it's that when you think about the core of athletics and coordination, they're not combative skills. They represent raw physical ability. Hmm. And so the idea of being able to, in an improvised setting, turn, at least temporarily, that raw physical ability into something combative is what we were going for here. Mm -hmm. And the first talent is coordination-based. It is called, take this! (laughs) With an exclamation point on it. Right. Um, It is a tier two talent. Mm -hmm. Um, Activation is active, incidental. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is Mm non-ranked. Once per encounter, your character may use their coordination skill to make a ranged attack with a one-handed, improvised, thrown weapon. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I like it. So, this, this, yeah, man, this is grabbing that beer bottle or that dinner plate and hurling it. I think the, the Mandalorian did that recently <laughs> in the first scene. I, I think so, yes. <laughs> and the second talent is because they're they're twin talents. It's take that. In a similar sort of vein, it's uh, it's tier two, and this one's going to focus on athletics. So it's a its activation is active incidental. Um, it's a non-ranked talent, and once per encounter, your character may use their athletic skill to make a melee attack with a two-handed improvised weapon. Breaking a chair over somebody's back. <laughs> so you're hurling the beer bottle at them, and as they're trying to recover from that, you bash them over the back of the head with a uh, a huge chair. Love it. Yeah, Jackie Chan has both these talents. And um, probably the improved and supreme versions that we haven't written yet <laughs> that allow him to do it like for every single attack he makes. That's um, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> very, very good cool. stuff. Good stuff. And Huli, uh, uh, of course, you know, after listening to this episode, people can find these talents actually written up, can they not? Mm, they certainly can. Uh, we'll link it on all of our social media, but we'll also put it on our website, which you can find at forgedgenesis.com. Fantastic. All right, good discussion. If you guys have any particular skills or talents that you want us to dive into, let us know. Um, head to any of our various social media platforms uh, and post it up. Or, of course, email us, forgedgenesis at d20radio.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Huli, I think it's time to pump the bellows and heat things up as we walk into the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, tonight we're going to continue our quite popular, and thank you all for your feedback, segment of series on the ins and outs of archetypes and species creation. And when it comes to creating your own setting or world in Genesis, or even expanding upon an existing one, archetypes and species can be some of the most critical components for players and your entire game. Indeed. Well-crafted, thematic archetypes and species, they go just an incredibly long way to imparting the tone and feeling of your game. But the balance of your game can be seriously impacted if those species are not built in a proper way. Something we'll be discussing later. With Christopher Ruthenbeck, actually. (laughs) (laughs) 
<clears throat> now, back in episode four, we began the first of a series on the topic of archetype and species creation, focusing on the overall rules for species crafting, but then honing into serious detail in that episode on species archetypes with a high bronze score. Now, in episode seven, we continue to dive into high willpower species and archetypes. Mm. And look, we strongly recommend that you give um, episode four a listen if you haven't uh, done so already. Uh, because in that episode, we covered the basics of archetypes and species creation with, uh, with rules and best practices uh, that we will be referencing tonight. Now, because tonight we're going to apply those rules to hammer out an intriguing species uh, that focus on the cunning attribute as the defining characteristic. Clever, observant, perhaps conniving. <laughs> High cunning species work well for some very classic archetype concepts, which we're going to break into tonight, including the best practices to develop your very own species and archetype abilities for those concepts. Indeed. So we should start with a boilerplate, yeah? Yep, absolutely. Now, as I said before, uh, tonight we're not going to be discussing the core rules of creating a species. Uh, the six parts of the species, um, XP costing when changing those parts, all that. Again, please go back and listen to episode four, where we'll uh, where we covered that in at length in the in the first half of the uh, the furnace segment. Uh, so there's no use repeating it again, uh, and we're going to proceed assuming that you know what we're talking about. Now tonight we're simply going to be applying all of those rules to the new archetype and a species focus. Cunning focus species. <laughs> Love the soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so the, look, we, we talk about a moment ago. We said that you know a cunning focused archetype or archetype or species embodies some pretty classic tropes. Mm. Um, in, in, in the role-playing genre, yeah. um, some, some strong focus areas. What, what are the big ones? Because I think these are going to kind of guide our discussion here as we talk about this. I mean, mm. what are they and, and what are the skills that are cunning-based that are commonly focused with them? Look, there's three main ones that, that come to mind. Um, and there's probably a fourth one as well, um, which is sort of a combination of a few of them. But we have the near-do-well, which is, you know, your, your typical rogue, um, you know, the thieves, informants, and con men. Uh, now they're going to concentrate on skullduggery, deception, and streetwise, uh, which are all cunning-based skills. Uh, we've then got the survivalist, and they're going to focus on survival and perception, and they're going to be the, the rangers and the trackers and, and scouts and things like that. And I think that we, we spoke very, very much at length um, in one of our previous episodes about the survival skill. Um, the druid is, is the third big one, which they focus on survival, and as far as spells go, they focus on primal, which is a cunning skill. Primal magic. Woot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weirdly limited and weirdly broad. It's yeah. a lot of play. It yeah, really is. Absolutely. And then the, the fourth one that I mentioned, which is sort of a, a bit of a combination of, of probably the first two, um, is where we're talking about perception and streetwise. Now, they're going to be your, you know, your detectives or perhaps an inquisitor for a church if you're wanting to look at the, the inquisition setting, for example. Um, you know, perception and streetwise, again, using cunning. Yeah, total makes total sense. This mm. makes total sense. Mm. Um, and when you're thinking about these types, you know, some of the questions to ask yourself 
you know, is, is kind of, cause it's going to be a little different for each one. When you're m- building the species, we talk about this as, as we, as we do for each type, <laughs> what should be your dump stat? That's a really good question. And look, uh, similar to the uh, the previous one that we had with willpower, um, it, it was a little bit difficult. I mean, they've there's one obvious choice, and that's that's intellect. Um, yeah. But you know, it it could just as easily, uh, depending on what sort of a focus that um, your species has, um, it could be agility. It could be. Uh, it could be brawn. It could also be. It could also be presence. So it's it's yeah. I mean, uh, intellect is probably the the best one, um, but there certainly are others that you can consider, and you have to look at um, your focus. Okay, and that's let's do that then, because I, I think that the best way to really frame this is is not to talk about the characteristics that you shouldn't dump, hmm. or excuse me, that, that you should dump. Um, maybe it's more important to consider the characteristics that you should not dump mm. all right and that's going to be heavily dependent on your focus yeah uh, you know when when you talk about the ne'er-do-well uh you know that 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 roguey con man thief mm. um you know I, I i mean honestly i think agility is probably one of the last uh you know characteristics you should dump yep. it's it could be quite important mm. um you know if you're going for a more sneaky skullduggerous type you know stealth coordination ranged combat very important for that type of character mm. but on the opposite side of the ne'er-do-well you've got the con man and you know if, if that's what you're going for you know presence is the characteristic you don't want to dump because mm. if you're going to have that con man character they're going to serve as an interim face for the party you know they need presence for charm negotiation cool mm. extremely important for that con man vibe you know yep absolutely and then you've got the survivalist where brawn is going to be the most important um for you know your melee combat your resilience for being able to survive out in the wild um and again athletics uh, that we just talk, yeah. talked about in the last um, segment. But agility can also be important too, especially if you're talking about, uh, you know, like a ranger, because they're relying heavily on using their, you know, bows and arrows. So um, that's where it's, it's quite important too. Yeah. And, and on a related note, um, you could make much the same argument for the druid, but let's be frank here. The most important secondary characteristic for a druid type, you know, outside of that cunning, um, it should be on equal footing, if not if if not just barely below, is going to be willpower. Mm. All right, that, that's that's the non dump because the willpower ties to discipline, yep. and also uh, ties to vigilance. Um, both very important for that druidic wild type character. Mm. And Chris, just on that, with the druid, um, what's their? Because I know obviously with the um, Arcana skill uh, that it's knowledge law. What is it for the druid? Well, if you're going by a strict raw, it would still be knowledge because right. that that doesn't change in the core rules mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of additional effects. If as I'm assuming what you're referring to. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but by by pure by pure raw, it wouldn't change. It would still be knowledge. So that means intellect could also be very mm. important. Um, but by the same token, discipline is extremely important for a spellcaster because it's that spell. It's that skill that's used as a resistance skill yeah. against effects that are impacting you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or, or that, that are targeting you. Additionally, your crafty GM, especially if you're maintaining an, a spell, a crafty GM may very well call for a discipline check to maintain if you're put into extremely trying circumstances. Right. And overall, the idea of a primal caster or a divine caster, um, discipline is very representative of the mental fortitude, clarity, concentration, and meditation that is very common to that kind of trope. Mm, absolutely. So now, now, as far as the the fourth sort of option that we talked about, um, the investigator willpower again is is very important, mainly due to vigilance and coercion, uh, which ah. is something that you know your detective is, is wanting to uh, to make sure that they've got so that they can uh, they've got that court that uh, coercion uh, to a point where they can you know get that information that they need from from those uh, those criminals who don't want to give it up. Where are the drugs going? <laughs> oh, it looks like a cop. <laughs> um. or, de- or, de- <laughs> or depending on what sort of superhero you're going for, it, it could be an area, where is she? Where is she? Uh. <laughs> Why did you say that name? <laughs> Uh, oh, dear. God, his mother's named Martha, too. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> oh, God. He really isn't going to kill everyone. His mother's named Martha, too. <laughs> <laughs> that would have to be the dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my life. But any- anyway. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <clears throat> <laughs> Oh, brother. Yeah. But honestly, look, when we talk about, you know, getting additional threes and other characteristics, mm. you know, depending on, on what trope you're going for, yeah. um, the, the ones we've mentioned are really strong candidates to go along with cunning for that three. So, yep. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So when it comes to skill usage and special ability free ranks, where do we give the free skill rank? Hmm. Okay, so you really got to break this down into into cunning based skills versus non cunning based skills because again, the as the core rules make clear that free rank that the species or archetype is going to get should if, if it's going to be free quote unquote that it needs to be something that is is not cunning based so yeah. it doesn't have a direct synergy. So you want to look at cunning skills. You want to look at non-cunning skills. Now, you can do cunning skills. It's just going to cost you a bit more for that free rank. Yeah. Now, obviously, in terms of the core rules, the, the cunning-based skills that are out there are, are deception, perception, primal, skullduggery, streetwise, and survival. If you're going to provide a free rank in one of those, honestly, you should take an extra minus 5 XP hit to the build. It, it should cost more than just free. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Huli, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And say that if you're getting a free rank in Primal, it should probably be a minus 10 XP hit. <laughs> I would agree with you. Absolutely. Um, which, which tends to be, uh, I mean, when it comes to magic skills, that's incredibly potent. Mm. Uh, especially because you can't even attempt it, at least in terms of core rules, without a rank in that skill. Mm. So there you go. Mm. So as far as the non-cunning-based skills, though, um, you know, uh, honestly, the, the good cheap choices, depending on the theme or focus, um, is and uh, we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go back to looking at um, at our four different types or four different focuses. So the near do well um, would be stealth, coordination, or cool, as we mentioned before. You know, a, a rank in that would do really, really well. 
Um, the survivalists would be athletics or resilience. You know, my preference would be for resilience, but, um, you know, athletics could be just as good if you're doing like a mountain climber or, or something like that. Uh, the druid is discipline or knowledge, uh, especially as we talked about before. You know, knowledge is certainly still required for to power some of the the spells that you might be casting. And also, if you've decided for whatever reason to use intellect as your jump stat, uh, that having that knowledge is going to turn that green into a yellow. So it's going to increase your chances of, of, of getting some more successes and certainly that triumph that you might be looking for. And lastly, we have the investigator. So for that, we're looking at things like vigilance or coercion. And, uh, you know, depending on which way you, you want to go, you may also be looking um, at things like, um, you know, range light mm. um, or, or some combat skills like brawl as well. Now, so, okay, we, we've gone through we've gone through some of the basics here. We've gone through, you know, characteristic layout. We've gone through free skill. The other key thing when you're building a species is obviously the unique abilities. And obviously, you, you know, your, your, your species or your archetype gets one for free, um, assuming that it a, 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 has a minus 5 XP cost. Mm. So let's talk about a few high-level options for those unique abilities that are, are really good to build off of. Yeah. And as usual, Julie, I think we can classify this into two different primary categories. Mm. Agreed. So we've got the cunning substitution for all, uh, sorry, for other characteristics in, in skills. So, you know, a, a cunning for a brawn-based check is a classic. Um, and our best recommendation for this one, basically, uh, it really represents outwitting a physical situation. So, you know, what's a, what's a good example of that, Chris? Oh, a great example is, um, uh, well, in combat. Uh, so the, the big thing is like this, this is one of those really potent abilities. That's kind of the category it's in. Mm. So it, it means, these things should be once per encounter, typically once per session, and they should cost a story point, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, so, and so, if if you're doing that, and you have that level of restricted usage, I mean, if you if you say, you know, yeah, substitute cunning for a brawn based skill check. Do you know what the, what's a brawn based skill check? Melee, <laughs> brawl. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so so literally, you're using your cunning for an attack, which really represents a, a kind of a sneaky, underhanded move that you can do once in a session. Yep. You know, by spending a story point, I really like that. Mm. Um, another another idea is using cunning in place of something like athletics, um, where you know instead of using brawn, you're able to, you know, what instead of trying to break down this door with my bare strength, can we find a lever? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, things like that can really represent this in play. Yeah. So I, I really, I really like that as a, as as you said, Huli, our 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 best recommendation for for the for the potent ability that is going to cost, you know, a story point and be that once per encounter or once per session thing. Mm. So another one is using cunning, and again, this is one of those potent abilities where you're using you know you're spending a story point is using cunning to substitute skill ranks in certain skills. Now, this is best used for, for combat skills, if you're going to uh, do it that way, um, similar to what you talked about before, Chris. Yeah. Um, and another great option is an intellect-based skill, uh, representing you just this one time relying on you know your craftiness in place of formal training for an intellectual pursuit. 
And probably the best example of that is uh, going to be a knowledge skill check. Exactly. Uh, where, uh, you know, you, you need to know about what sort of, for whatever reason, you're looking for who was the manufacturer of certain doors to uh, reference your podcast from uh, the other day <laughs> with regards to Transocean door builders. You know, if there was, if you wanted to know who that was, it might be a case of, you know, substitute that, that cunning instead of using um, your uh, your ranks in, in whatever knowledge skill that you have. And narratively speaking, like if you were to like, you know, hey, we'll go find out. Let's go research it. Or if you have this potent ability, you can have that moment of clarity where, where you know, while the party academic is like, well, let's go research it. You can activate this lean over to a nearby door and and find the manufacturer's label, right? <laughs> uh, you know, which is a, a great, great example of that. The yeah. other one I like for using cunning to, to substitute a, an intellect-based skill rank um, is actually mechanics, uh, which represents the idea of, you know, uh, massaging or hitting a machine in just the right way to kind of fix something that's broken. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Falcon here, and <laughs> where he basically hits the hits the side that starts up. Great. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so if that category is the potent abilities, hmm. uh, which again, those those once per encounter, once per session, story point costing abilities, the other category is going to be the always on abilities. These are less potent, far less powerful, hmm. but they don't cost you anything to use, and they are typically, quote unquote, always in play. Yeah. Um, I find dark vision to be a fantastic, uh, I mean, example right out of the raw. Mm. Um, not only does it really fit with the ne'er do well and survivalist concepts, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it, it goes hand in hand with perception, which is a, a key cunning focused ability yeah. skill. Um, mm. and, and I really, really like that. Mm. Absolutely. So another good choice are things, uh, that boost related skills. So in other words, it's going to give you a free boost eye. But in um, certain situational circumstances, so especially if you want to keep it around about that 5 XP cost. Oh, yeah. So things that are going to give you, you know, a boost eye to your survival or a boost eye to your perception, you know, things like that that, uh, that are always going to be on um, is another good, um, you know, choice for, for that sort of special ability. Yeah, and that, that's a key because there's a lot of, especially in Star Wars, there's a lot of like, you know, talents and other abilities that are like, hey, you get a boost die to this skill, right? Mm. But that is far too powerful for a, a minus five XP ability yeah. like this. It, so if you're going to do something like that, it needs to have that situational circumstance. And you're actually going to see that in a bit when we talk about my build example. Oh, cool. Well, that's kind of a bit of a segue then. I mean, uh, hopefully that's sort of explained how best to use cunning-based characters or how to create them. So, uh, as we always do, let's, let's give our examples on, on um, how we've used cunning uh, to create an archetype. Yes. So, Chris, I'm going to go first because I really love yours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, as a fan of L5R, mainly because I've written for, uh, for L5R for FFG... Uh, I've suddenly found um, this wonderful species that uh, that I've got a special place in my heart for now, uh, and that's the Kasune. They're a shape-changing fox, that, and they're really mischievous tricksters, uh, and they're actually spirits from the uh, from the spirit realm. 
that have decided to take uh, a human form. Now, they're normally pretty charismatic, they're, they're elegant and filled with poise, but, um, you know, naturally they're, they're a fox. Uh, they're normally sort of un, unusual colours, and they've got these really sort of unique nine long tails. Now, this is a problem that remains with them in human form. Because what happens is that um, when they transform into a human, they keep them. So they have to try and hide them under a, you know, under a, uh, a kimono or a, or a hakama. Um, and, yeah, that, that's a real problem for them because obviously if they're discovered, they're going to be in all sorts of problems. Um, so, uh, you know, family is still very important to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they live in, in tightly knit family units. They also use magic, um, and uh, you know, after all, because they're they're tied to to the spirit realm. Uh, so yeah, few issues there. Uh, the The first one, obviously, is that uh, you know we have a cunning in three. That's where, you know, that's part of this build. So we're putting a cunning in three. Uh, the agility, intellect, willpower, and presence are all going to be two. Now, I thought about a higher presence due to their, you know, their beautiful nature. But, um, you know, I, I decided that, you know, two threes were going to be a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that was uh, the, the, the charisma side of things is a factor that I could p- apply later on down the track um, in their skills and special abilities. The dumb stat I've decided to do was brawn. And that's because... These creatures are normally small and they're nimble, and they're not supposed to get into a fight anyway. The aim of the exercise for them is to be mischievous and then run like hell. So, <laughs> so brawn wasn't a, a really important thing for me. For wound threshold and, and strain threshold, again, I really kind of gave them a bit of a negative when it comes to their brawn, and I've given them an eight plus brawn for their uh, for their wound threshold. For their strain threshold, however, I've decided to, because they're, they're very much connected to the spirit realm, so they need to be casting spells a lot more, mainly to save themselves, um, is going to be a 12. So, you know, they're small and fast, um, they run at the first sign of danger, and, and they, they can use their extra strain, as I said, to do additional manoeuvres as well as um, the spells, and I, and I didn't want them to run out of spells too quickly. So that's what I've gone with there. Holy, mm. I'm looking at your I'm looking at your math here, and, and I want to I want to ask because I think this is an important discussion to have. Mm. Under normal circumstances, you 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 decrease brawn by two. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you you decreased uh, wound threshold by two. Okay, yep. mm-hmm. and and you increased willpower by two. Yep. Um. Now, normally, and, and I, I totally get it. If you're increasing willpower by two. I mean, that's a lot. That's like a, what, minus 10, minus 15? Minus 15, yeah, absolutely. Minus 15. Now, decreasing brawn by two should actually give you a plus five XP. That's right. I'm going to question that. Okay. And I'll tell you why. As we talked about when we when we were building our brawny characters, mm-hmm. this, is, this is the wound threshold fallacy in the opposite direction. Mm. Because brawn is also this creature's dump stat, what you've left them with is an unmodified wound threshold of nine. Yeah. 
and that that is that is cripplingly terrible. If if I were designing this, I would actually give you a plus ten XP for that wound threshold, just considering the fact that brawn is also the dump stat. If mm. that makes sense, yeah, it does. Well, that means that I've got an extra five points to spend. <laughs> But that's okay. Maybe. Maybe. We'll come to that. We'll Maybe. come to that, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the special abilities. Um, I've given them one free rank of either charm or deception. Perfect. Um, so as I mentioned, I wanted them to be elegant but sly. So the obvious choice would be to choose deception due to the three and cunning. But, you know, both skills are going to suit the style of, of what the kitsune do. So, you know, it's one of those things that, as they say... You know, it's 10 XP cost if you're using a skill that is connected to your main attribute, but minus five if it's um, if it's connect if it's not connected to to the main one. So in this case, I'm going to suggest it could be either or. So in this case, instead of the the we call it free rank, um, I'm going to make that give myself a minus five XP instead. Now, as far as the unique rules go, now, these guys are a little bit different, but I, and I really sort of struggled how I was going to do this. So, instead of giving it a mechanical effect, I decided to give it a narrative effect instead. Oh, I love it. So, I've said, as an action, a kitsume may change shape from a fox to a human and vice versa. Your character's statistics remain exactly the same. Any equipment you are carrying remains where you change shape. And that's mm-hmm. it. So there's no mechanical benefit to this. It is purely just a narrative effect. If I was doing this in a written form, I would have a sidebar to give some sort of direction to the GM how to, you know, work out um, the adjudication of any sort of difficulties with regards to them changing shape or when they're in a different form. So for the second special ability, I've given them of the spirit realm. So this is... This is an expensive exercise, and I think I've probably miscalculated this. But the Kasune, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see why in a tick. So the Kasune um, gain the divine skill as a career skill, and then gain one rank in that skill as well. That ability is huge. Um, you know, gaining a magic skill as a career skill is one thing, but to also then gain a skill rank in the same skill, it's pretty powerful. Now, I've given that a negative 15, um, but I'm sort of, I'm wondering whether it should be a negative 20. It should be negative 20. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and to, listen, to put this in perspective, making a, making a magic skill just a straight up career skill, that is minus 10 XP territory for me. Yep, absolutely. And on top of that, you've given them a free rank and a skill, which is normally minus five. But in this case, it's a cunning base. Oh, oh, wait, no, it's divine. Mm. It's divine. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, then I, I still go for 20. So normally it would be minus five XP for getting a, an extra free rank and a different skill, mm. but it's a magic skill. Mm. So want to bump it up to a minus 10. If this was primal instead of cunning, mm. I would I would say minus fifteen for that instead of minus ten. I mean just just having the one extra one rank in a skill. Mm. So no no I, I think I, I think that's good. So so yeah honestly minus twenty I think is where it should be. That's mm. at least that's just my opinion. Yep I agree. Now correct me if I'm wrong. Divine still gets cursed, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. 
And that's the reason why I went with that, because it's as part of their tricks to nature. I was thinking, because I, I looked at Primal, but Primal doesn't give curse. So I've uh, I went with Divine instead. So, um, so yeah. All right, so that's negative 20. I'm running out of points. Um, so now I've got a little bit of a different one that, again, I wasn't too sure how I wanted to represent the fact that they always have these seven tails, and it's a big problem for them. Um, so I've said when Kasune uh, is attempting to disguise themselves as humans, they gain two setback die to any deception or skullduggery checks. Um, if discovered, a Kasune may be arrested or killed on site. Any social checks after discovery are upgraded once. So I really needed an ability to, to tone what I've done previously, you know, right down. Um, otherwise, I'd be left with little to no XP. Um, and in a setting like L5R, where half the population are paranoid or are superstitious, hiding oneself when in human form will come up quite often. So I gave that a uh, plus 10 XP. I think that's very reasonable considering the narrative circumstance. Hmm. Yeah. And so after all of that, I'm left with a grand total of 85 starting XP. Which is not bad. Not bad considering what how really weird and unique this species is. Hmm. So, yeah, so that's my version. Oh, I love it. And I'm a huge <laughs> L5R fan, too. And the idea of playing a, a Kitsune, I think, is is absolutely brilliant. Hmm. And what I love most about what you did is the highly narrative nature and role-playing nature of so many of their abilities. Yeah. So I, I really, really like that. Hmm. Cool. Well done. Thanks. And what about yours, which looks super interesting? I think it's okay. I, I actually find <laughs> yours to be much more interesting, but um, I created, I'm calling it the shadow kin or, or uh, if they, if they, if the species had a name, they called themselves, it would definitely be the umbral. Mm. Um, so the shadow kin or the umbral have, have jet black inky skin, which seems to shift uh, and change between tones of darkness when they're within shadow. Um, the, the idea is the concept of, of a species that is a a you know ha, has a supernatural heritage that goes back an incredibly long ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're 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 a natural sneak. Their entire species evolution, you know, long in the past, is about darkness and living in darkness and thriving in darkness, mm-hmm. which obviously has informed their biology. But more importantly, it's informed their culture millennia later and i think that that concept fascinates me Hmm. and this kind of species this umbral species is actually a pretty common staple um not only in fantasy but also space opera Hmm. so it's a species that's generally regarded in the setting as untrustworthy uh secretive uh skullduggerous or or living in the the underbelly of civilization Hmm. very cool i like it (laughs) because it's very much sort of almost drow in sort of but it's it's a lot more. Um, there's oh, I'm trying to remember what they were called in um, in Pathfinder. There's something similar to this. Um, I can't remember what they're called, but they're from the Shadow Realm. Yeah, it's been represented so many times, and that was mm. the idea: is the idea of of, of uh, you know your your distant ancestors, and I mean like millennia ago, yep. the ancestors of your species came from the Shadow Realm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but you know but you're in the material plane now, so this is it. Mm. Um. Or from a space opera standpoint, your species evolved on a on a planet of total night. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like 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 almost no light at all. Yeah. Okay. Which again, very common space opera trope. Mm. So with this in mind, starting characteristics was actually cunning. 
um, at three, of course, because mm-hmm. um, that's what we're talking about. Yep. Um, brawn, agility, intellect, and willpower at two. I was seriously tempted to boost agility to three um, just from a stealth standpoint. Mm-hmm. But frankly, it was just too on the nose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and this species, as we'll see, I think has enough in the way of stealth boosting capabilities already. Yep. So I, I didn't feel I needed to do that. Um, and as that, that of course leads the sixth characteristic of presence at one. Um, I, I kept presence as the dump stat because these creatures are naturally distrusted and just odd. <laughs> and and that, that means that they, they've, you know, from a cultural standpoint, really struggled to develop honest social abilities. Yeah. Now, uh, when it comes to wound threshold and strain threshold, um, I also took a dump to brawn. Um, I, I moved it down to eight. Um, I kept willpower at 10 though. Okay. Uh, so wound threshold, I moved down to, to eight plus brawn strength threshold. I, I kept at 10 plus willpower. Yep. Um, I, I really envision these creatures being very slight in appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, not hardy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reduced wound threshold really worked great for that. And also that gave me plus five XP to the species build, <laughs> which I really need, I wanted because I, I love building cool species, but the closest, the closest I can do to keep them at a hundred XP, I want to get to whenever possible. Yeah. Um, so then we come into special abilities. Um, one free rank. I gave it to him in stealth. Mm. Um, it, it actually still works as a, you know, a quote unquote free, uh, rank only, you know, um, because of the fact that it's not cunning based. Um, and, and I felt it fit the theme really well. Um, if I had, if I had bumped agility, uh, to three, I definitely would have had to, had to have had this cost an extra minus five XP to the, to the overall build. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now then we get into the other unique rules. Mm. Um, so we start with my free quote unquote unique ability, you know, something that should only be worth minus five XP. Um, I had to go with dark vision. Mm-hmm. It just makes way too much sense for the species and it's incredibly thematic. Yeah. Um, so right now I'm actually sitting at 105 XP uh, for the species, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of crazy, <laughs> uh, but let's knock that down a peg. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things we talked about when we, we mentioned uh, great always-on abilities is offering situational boost die that are always on. Yeah. And I really wanted to do that with this build. And so I gave them an ability called Shadow Blend. Mm-hmm. When in areas of dim illumination or darkness, your character gains one boost die on stealth checks. Mm. Um, what's ironic is that's actually probably the situation that you would least need a boost die. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so as a result, it's very situational. Uh, you know, you have to be in that very dim, dark situation to get it. And it's because, you know, the, the, um, the shadow kin or or the umbrals, uh, their, their skin morphs and becomes shadow like. And so they Mm. blend in is basically what it is. Yeah. And it's certainly Uh, sending that sort of message to, to anyone who would be looking at this species to go, that's exactly what they do. Even as you yeah. say that, you know, you get a boost eye on a stealth check, but chances are because of their nature, they're going to have good stealth anyway. You're just giving them even more stealth, but it's still keeping it in, in theme and, and really, you know, uh, sending home what, that it, um, what it's all about. Absolutely. Now, I'm still sitting at... A hundred. Uh, now, now that that ability, I costed at minus five XP. Okay, mm-hmm. because it was it was very situational. 
Um, and so I felt it was a kind of a, a good a good mix. This brings me back down to 100 XP for the the, the, the archetype species. Mm-hmm. Um, but I added two additional things. As I was really thinking about this and, and kind of thinking about this this species theme and and really their history and their heritage, it makes absolute sense to me that they're going to be light sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very drow like as you mm-hmm. put it earlier. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when they are in areas that are well lit, um, uh, your character suffers one setback die to perception checks and combat skill checks in areas of extremely bright illumination per GM description, your character suffers two setback dice. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty big drawback. Yeah. Um, so I, I costed it at plus 10 XP to the species. It is going to give 10 XP back. Mm. Um, so that's actually going to bring the species XP back to up to 110, uh, like a standard human. But I really, I didn't want that. I wanted to give them one other cool ability that really <laughs> related back to their supernatural heritage, basically. Right. Um, so I called it dark heritage. <laughs> Once per session, your character may spend a story point to cast a spell using the primal skill even if your character has no ranks in the primal skill. Wow. Now, maybe I undercosted this, and you can tell me what you think, hmm. but I'm not giving them access to the skill. I'm mm-hmm. not even giving them a free rank. It's basically half of the Templar talent from um, Realms of Terranoth yep. is applied to primal instead of divine. Mm. And you got to spend a story point to do it. Mm. Okay? So... Because of the fact, even though even though that's a, a potent ability that is story point and it only happens once per session, it is magic. And so a, as a result, um, I costed it at, at minus 10 XP. Mm. That idea of having a species-based connection to cunning-based magic I thought was kind of cool. Yep. But it is cunning-based. You know, it's, it's kind of a big deal. And as we talked about with your kitsune, it may be too on the nose. Do you think I oh, I undercosted this? Maybe maybe it should be like minus fifteen. Look, I'm just looking at it, I agree with the minus ten, and and I'll tell you why. Um, I think that because they they're only going to be rolling greens, even if they have a four in it, they're only going to be rolling greens. So there's there's no big things with triumphs or whatever else. Um, so look, I don't have a problem with the minus ten at all. Um, because you're not giving them as a career skill, uh, unless they've taken some sort of career that does have the primal skill, in which case that they can use it normally anyway. And they would never use this ability, yeah. No, they'd never use the ability. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think minus 10 is fine. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah, I hadn't considered that. They'd never, ever have a yellow in the pool. No. Because they're because if they ever have ranks, they're just going to be rolling normally anyway. Correct. And they can't spend a story point to upgrade the role because they've already spent a story point to use dark heritage. That's right. Interesting. Okay. Well, with that in mind at that minus 10, that actually brings us down to a hundred XP wow. um, for the species. So this is a, a hundred XP species that I, I really like. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's the, the shadow kin or the umbral. Nice. Now, where are they going to be able to find this, um, these two species or archetypes, Chris? 
<laughs> well, the same place they can find uh, the the two talents we just created a little bit ago. Um, of course, they can head to our website at forgegenesis.com and go to the resources section mm-hmm. where they'll find a document for this episode with all this new content in it. And of course, we'll post that up and make it available on our various social media platforms as we go. Indeed. Very, very cool. I like both of those species. I'd play either of them. I so, would fun. That's very cool. Speaking of species, um, do you think that we should um, have a bit of a chat with a person who has done a supplement in relation to that same topic? Absolutely. I, I'm really eager to talk to this guy. He's, he's, a, he's a talented young developer, new developer. Um, he's got some exciting stuff out on the foundry. Um, that has really made life a lot easier for a lot of us. Mm. So yeah, let's 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 get into breaking the mold with Christopher Ruthenbeck. Breaking the mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest is a very experienced playtester in the RPG industry, first credited in Big Eyes, Small Mouth, 3rd edition in 2007. Ever since, he's been tinkering with any new game he could get his hands on with a preference for more generic systems, due to his propensity to play in multiple different genres, aren't we all? Uh, He has his name not only in several RPGs as a playtester, but also has several self-published works for the Fate Core RPG under his belt. He was the host of one of the first Genesis RPG podcasts in the form of Excess Advantage, as well as being a Discord and Reddit moderator. He is a man who currently has two fantastic submissions on the Genesis Foundry, the second of which, Archetypal Species, is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So without further ado, listeners, may we introduce you to the illustrious Christopher Ruthenbeck. Christopher, welcome to the show. Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, Christopher, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your gaming career? Um, Yeah, I certainly can. I think that along with many people my age, I got my start with the blue box uh, Mm D&D. I was just at one of my friend's house one day and he found it in an attic or something. I don't really know where. And he's like, hey, we should try this game. And so that was back in 1998 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I was still in middle school. So, mm-hmm. yes, that's how old I am. Um, very soon after, we found a, a local gaming store, which was more of a um, model shop. They had um, trains and such with a small section for RPGs, but we found AD&D. It's very important that the very first page of the book said this says, this is not AD&D 2nd Edition. So <laughs> that was the first full RPG book I bought, but... Very soon after, I found the West End game Star Wars Mm. and have pretty much played every Star Wars game since. And somewhere in high school, I found Big Eye Small Mouth. It was in second edition at that time. Mm. Uh, That pretty much became uh, my group's go-to RPG. Not so much because it was an anime-inspired game, but because it was the first generic system that we had found. Mm. And the West End games D6 can be pretty modular, but... Oh my goodness, are there so many dice rolls for just about everything? <laughs> and and Besom had a lot less dice rolls. 
So it was quicker to um, to resolve things. And so we played that for a number of years. Um, I kept playing pretty much from the time I found that box in my buddy's house all the way up until today. Uh, right after college, I think I took like a two-year break um, right after D&D 4th Edition, which, unlike most people, I very much enjoyed playing. Tried to play Shadowrun once. That didn't go well. <laughs> Um, had someone try to teach me GURPS, didn't really grok that either, but, um, no, no, no. And then one of my, uh, friends and coworkers went to Gen Con, what was that, 2011 when the Edge of the Empire beta was announced and he picked me up a copy. He went every year. So every beta I was able to get, uh, my hands on because he was just a cool guy like that. And so I've been in the narrative dice system since its inception and um, very much enjoyed what it did with Star Wars. And like I constantly tell everyone who asks and is willing to listen to me babble (laughs) that Genesis is a revised edition of the same rules you'll find in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So if you know one, you can play the other without really much difficulty at all. Mm -hmm. And I just I like Genesis better than Star Wars because it is a more generic game, so it doesn't have a lot of the preconceived notions that, like, this is Star Wars, so this is how this specific rule has to work. A mm. uh, big example is Force Powers versus Magic, but you guys talked about that, well, last published episode, so nope. it's, what, three episodes prior to this one? <laughs> or something like that? No, Which no, no, was an no. amazing episode, by the way. <laughs> well, thank I, you. <laughs> it, it took me about three days to get through it because I had a lot going on, but great episode. I, I love what you guys did with it broke it down and explained everything really, really well. Thanks. Thank you. Well, okay. So Christopher, since, since you are such a fan of generic RPGs and, and we all know the power of the generic role-playing game, um, we always ask the question and I'd love to ask you, what is your first love of Genesis? Meaning what style of game or game setting or theme do you really like to get on the table when you play Genesis? My absolute favorite bar none is um, space opera. Because I just love space pews. Give me a good space battle any day. Uh, my favorite Star Wars movie is Return of the Jedi because that space battle at the end with the second Death Star is, in my opinion, one of the best space battles in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So just give me starships, give me snub fighters, give me you know laser cannons and torpedoes and crazy maneuvers and like just give me space combat and I'm happy. <laughs> Well, you're in good company, because um, uh, I very, very much agree. <laughs> mm. And honestly, that's like one of my big litmus tests for any RPG I play is how good are the vehicle rules. And if they're not all that good, I just won't even look at the game because that's that's how much I love flying ships and blowing stuff up. Mm. So on that, how do you find, in comparison, uh, the Star Wars vehicle rules to the vehicle rules that uh, we have in Genesis? It's funny we're having this conversation because I had a very similar one um, a few hours ago uh, on the Tabletop Squadron uh, Discord. (laughs) I don't really know how we got talking about it, but it came up. And so the Star Wars vehicle rules were good for what they were trying to do, but the Genesis rules are so much better. And I think that a lot of people who don't do vehicle combat in Star Wars should really look at the Genesis rules just because everything makes more sense. Like the the biggest thing for me 
with the difference between the two is in Star Wars, you actually have to spend a maneuver to have your vehicle move. Even if you're going max speed, even if you're going speed six, mm. you still need to spend a maneuver in order for that speed to actually matter. Mm. Because for those listeners who are unfamiliar with Star Wars vehicles rules, um, the speed of your vehicle determines how many maneuvers it, it takes you to move between range bands. Mm. But in Genesis, if you're going max speed without doing anything, you've already moved two or three range bands. Mm. And then you can also take the reposition maneuver to go one additional range band. So that in of itself solves like 60% of most people's um, confusion with Star Wars rules because they're like, my A-Wing is going so freaking fast, yet <laughs> it's not moving compared to the stop start destroyer unless my pilot actively does something mm. and it leaves them scratching their head. <laughs> um, and they also got rid of um, the sensors rules because those were really weird that a lot of starships could shoot farther than their sensors could detect. So mm -hmm. the weapon range didn't matter because you couldn't see that far. Mm -hmm. And with the getting rid of the vehicle um, range bands and just sticking with the personal scale range bands and then adding that extra strategic range band makes it so much more intuitive because you're using the same rules, the same range bands, because if you're used to personal scale combat okay you're in short range well in star wars you're close mm. or i'm sorry in vehicle combat you're close range yep. so they were almost the same but not quite and it just combining it all into one using the same vernacular makes it so much more accessible because you're used to those range band names in personal combat and then when you get into a vehicle it's the same thing mm. absolutely well, we're certainly going to do an episode uh, in relation to vehicles in the near future. Uh, but, Christopher, that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> I sidetracked us there I mean, for a time. We could. Yeah, we could. But, um, but uh, we're here to basically talk about archetypal species. So give us the pitch. Tell us why archetypal species is a great supplement and why people need to rush out and purchase it on DriveThruRPG. Well, the I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs of the introduction because I think that encapsulates everything pretty well. Sure. Welcome to Archetypal Species. This book is an examination and expansion of the guidelines found on pages 193 to 194 of the Genesis Core Rulebook. Those two pages have some great advice for GMs creating their first archetypes or species, but there's a lot more nuance to it than can be fit into two pages. Also, there have been two additional books as of the time of publication, that have helped develop the art form that is archetype creation. So the basic elevator pitch is that the core rulebook has this annoying problem of page count, and so they can't do everything in the core book, mm -hmm. and two pages really doesn't do justice for one of the foundational aspects of anybody's game. Because once your players pick an archetype or a species... Unless something really nasty happens to that character, they will play that same archetype or that same species throughout the entire game. And if your archetypes are not well-balanced, well-play-tested, well-thought-out, and they're just kind of thrown together slapshot, some player may end up getting a really crappy archetype that sounded good in the beginning, but in play just kind of lost its luster. Mm. And also, I would like to... Um, have a frame challenge when you say rush out and purchase it on drive through RPG, because um, I believe wholeheartedly that um, this supplement is for every single GM, whether or not you can afford to buy it. Mm -hmm. So it is pay what you want. Nice. If you can't afford any money, 
put zero in that field and get it, download it, read it, use it. Mm-hmm. I am not doing this to make money. I'm doing this because I believe that it is something that every GM should have, even if it's just a reference so they can get a little bit more idea of making their own stuff. If you really like it that much, you can come back and repurchase it and put a different dollar amount in there that's mm-hmm. not zero. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to, but that's that's the idea is that everybody should have access to this because I believe it is such a fundamental part of your game yeah. that I'm not going to put it behind a paywall. Yeah. You, if you think it's worth money, you can give me money, but you don't have to. Yeah. And I, listen, this whole conversation, I, I want to move directly into a very specific question because this is this is a topic that's obviously an, an extreme passion for you, this particular topic. And I want to mm-hmm. dive along into the development of this specifically. I mean, like, what made you decide to release this supplement? Because I agree, the the need is there. And this the supplement, we we were kind of we we were Julie and I were smiling big smiles when this came out because um, it also coincided with our our first release of uh, our, of um, archetype creation episodes, right? Mm. Yes, I actually the day that the episode dropped, I messaged Julie and said. Oh, hey, by the way, here's a, a Google Doc link of what I'm working on. And it was archetypal species. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we were we were smiling big smiles and you've done a really good job here. But I mean, you know, you, you, you touched on it before, but I really liked you to expand on this. What made you decide to release this and develop it? The seed of the idea actually happened about six months after Shadow of the Beanstalk came out because someone on the Discord server had said, hey, why is the average human get more XP in Shadow of the Beanstalk than the average human in the core book or Realms of Terranoth? Has anybody done the math to find out where everything's, where all the different species and archetypes sit versus the XP amount that the, that the books had provided? And so I spent a few days going over those two pages over and over and over again, following each step as, um, as I go through all of the core rulebook human archetypes, all of the species in Realms of Terranoth, and then for all of the archetypes in Shadow of the Beanstalk. So I had done it for how many archetypes is that? I even did a few of the species in the um, in the uh, space opera and Weird War mm-hmm. in the back of the, the core book. Mm-hmm. So... It all started when someone said, hey, these don't match up. Why not? And so I decided to run the numbers and find out um, why the discrepancy. And there was no mathematical reason behind it that I could find out. And so um, I kind of just left it for a while. And then when uh, the Foundry was announced, um, I was going through a list of things that I would like to uh, put on there. And one of them being archetypal species because I had already done all of the research and read through all of the um, archetypes and all the species that are currently available. So I knew that topic very well, but I just kind of, it was kind of lower down on my list. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, the very first thing on my list was something that I was working on at that time was a vehicle supplement, which included vehicle creation rules that I had been working on for a while. Mm-hmm. And the part of the announcement for Foundry, the next thing is, oh, by the way, expanded player guide, vehicle creation rules. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I guess I'm just going to have to wait. And then when that comes out, I, I plan on revisiting the vehicle expansion mm-hmm. in when uh, the EPG comes out. But I need to see what that has before I publish my own thing. Yep. 
And so, um, and then there was just some more talk on uh, the Discord server where people were asking for feedback and advice on uh, creating their archetypes. Mm -hmm. I think a big push was both Scott and Guillaume, uh, who you guys have had on uh, already, Mm -hmm. were working on their stuff and were, you know, asking me specifically because I had done all the work for the existing archetypes and species and they're like okay this is what i'm working on this is what i'm doing you know the numbers does this work what would you change Mm -hmm. and so after i figured out what that was all for i figured this is something i know very well um it's something that obviously people want Mm -hmm. because they keep asking about it so i'll go ahead and put it together and see if people actually like it and obviously they do because it's, uh, it's... Obviously they do. Yeah. A lot of people are talking about it. I know that, um, you know, we've certainly referred to it a number of times during the the um, uh, the sections where we're talking about creating archetypes and things like that. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's full of good information. And the, the thing that I like about it is that it's just laid out quite succinctly so that anybody can pick it up. As you say, GMs should be looking at this. Um, if they're creating their own settings so that they can use those uh, the, the tips and tricks that you've uh, provided in there. Now, we talk about uh, playtesting a lot uh, on the show and how important it is before releasing it to the masses. Um, now, your product's a little bit different because you're, you're obviously just um, stepping it out. But as far right. as um, the, uh, the archetypes that, that you do provide um, in the supplement... Was there any playtesting, or did you just go by the uh, by the numbers? There was playtesting. Okay. The Sylvan mm-hmm. uh, species, which is my version of Wood Elf, mm-hmm. I actually created that ugh, year and a half ago now mm-hmm. um, for my home game, which is what Zephyr Knights was. It was the one unique thing about my fantasy world um, that I was that I did for my players, and one of my players wanted to play a wood elf Mm. so i was like okay let me figure things out and so um the sylvan is what became of that and so that had been at has been at the table now for over a year and been working pretty well for our group so i figured that's a great thing to throw in there because i know it works well Mm. i know it's balanced um and my player is very happy with it Mm. One of the things that you mentioned before with regards to uh, the numbers as far as things balancing and, and whatever else, have you found that sometimes with playtesting that the numbers don't always match up as far as power levels and things like that, so you you have to kind of readjust on the fly? I've never done any on-the-fly readjustments, okay. but every few months at my table, I we take a session out and just make sure our characters are where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, since all of the species in my fantasy game were made by me, I make sure that my players are comfortable and they like where what their characters are and um, how they how the, how everything works together. Mm. And granted, it's just a small test group of f- four players currently. Most of the time, for for my personal experience, there's not much that um, changes balance-wise as far as the numbers go because mm-hmm. we're happy with it. And I haven't really done, besides the Sylvan species and the gymnast archetype here, mm-hmm. I haven't published any archetypes or species for public consumption. Mm-hmm. So I really 
don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a couple good ones in here, and mm. and honestly, that's the thing. We, we we talk about this supplement, and we we and obviously our our conversation so far has been on this. You know, it, it is a a wonderful tool that every GM should keep in their back pocket or their digital back pocket when they're creating species to gut check it. But you also by way of example, to explain everything, actually created two brand new species that are fully fleshed out and are available, these new archetypes, in this supplement as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so you had the, you had the Sylvan, um, right. and then the, the other one, which was actually a, a genuine species, the other is more of an actual archetype in a more generic sense, um, mm-hmm. which was uh, the gymnast, correct? Correct. So my, um, my idea was, uh, for way of example, I take... Um, a kernel of of an idea and build it out in two completely separate ways. Mm. So the basic idea was I'm going to create one archetype and one species that is based on mobility and getting around quicker than normal. And um, one of the things that I discovered in my research is that archetypes, with the exception of the clone and the bioroid in um, Shadow of the Beanstalk, all currently published archetypes have a once per session ability to spend a story point to do something. Mm. Whereas species, every existing species, ex- with the exception of the human in um, Realms of Terranoth, because it's you know the generic human archetype, mm. has what are considered always-on abilities. Like mm. in Realms of Terranoth, the elves have nimble, so they have defense one always. No strain to spend, no story point to spend, they just have it. You know, the different dwarves have their um, their resilience. The different orcs have their um, beating people up. And so I was like, okay, I need to create one of each so, so people can see this, this kernel that grows into two separate things. And so the gymnast was an archetype that um, really all I did for its special ability was... Um, was to take the parkour talent from from Shadows of the Beanstalk. Shadow. Sorry, there, there I go adding the S. Shadow of the Beanstalk. You are not the only um, one, Christopher. You're not the only one, really. No, definitely not. Uh, so I, I took that, that talent. I reduced it to once per encounter instead of once per... Or I reduced it to once per um, session mm. when normally you can use it every round. Um, gave it a story point cost instead of a strain cost. And that reduced its XP cost from, you know, it's a tier four talent, so it's 20 XP. Mm. But with all of these restrictions on it, I dropped the cost to five because that made sense to me. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that being able to parkour once per session is cool, but not really that impressive. Mm. So, like I said at the beginning, it was all about mobility and getting around. So I just renamed it in the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Once per session, spend a story point to, as a maneuver, move to any location in medium range as long as you could run, climb, jump, swim, or crawl there. Mm-hmm. You know, the GM may decide that a 12-foot wall is impassable, but other than that, free reign. Mm-hmm. And then for the Sylvan, which is the Wood Elves, um, I went a slightly different direction. And instead of a once per encounter, once per whatever, it's just a flat reduction of the advantage that it normally costs to perform a free maneuver. Mm. So normally you can spend two advantage to perform a free maneuver on your turn or as an out of turn incidental spend two threats from an enemy's role to perform a maneuver. Mm. So the ability called deft 
reduces that to one advantage or one threat, but you still cannot exceed that two maneuvers in a round limit, but it's only one advantage, which is, you know, do I want to recover a strain or do I want to move? Do I want to recover a strain or do I want to pull out a, a healing potion or something? You know, it's it's one advantage. It's it's not much, but boom, look at that. I'm, can be like we were talking about in the, in the, our last episode where we we uh, were talking about the rough parts of magic initially. Mm-hmm. It becomes yeah. sort of internal chess game of advantage spending sometimes. Uh, that that I don't know. Yeah, I, I loved this ability. I loved it. Yeah, and honestly, in my uh, experience as a GM, um, both at home and I've run a few one shots online, that spending two advantage for free maneuver is so underutilized like most of the time people don't even remember that it's there Mm. and so this is this was also my way to incentivize my players to remember oh hey i can get a free maneuver by spending advantage instead of suffering strain Mm. so it kind of is doing dual purpose so it's Mm. it's making the sylvan unique and it's also reminding my players oh hey i don't always have to suffer strain for another maneuver yeah it's very true now, this is your second product on the Genesis Foundry, the first of which uh, you mentioned before is Zephyr Knights and Aromancer Supplement, which is absolutely fantastic. So we'll get you back on the show at some point to talk about that. Sounds good to me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you have any suggestions for anybody who's wanting to write for the Foundry since you've had some experience in that realm already? My biggest piece of advice is, or suggestion is just just do it. Mm. Um, Zephyr Knights and archetypal species both are small mm-hmm. um up until that point the only small things that had been put up were uh character sheets and um i forget who does it they have the npc sheets that are um the pdfs for the various um adversaries yeah silverwing so, armory yeah silverwing armory so that was pretty much the only thing that was small everything else you're looking at something strange you're looking at Inquisition, Starkana, Ready Fight, all these things are, mm. you know, at least 60 pages. Even the adventures are, you know, 30 plus pages. Mm. And so I was honestly, I was a little reticent at first. I'm like, Archetypal Species is only 10 pages, including front and back cover. Mm. <laughs> you know, Zephyr Knights is not much bigger. But, you know, there is something to be said for the smaller supplements because right now, a majority of what's on Foundry are these huge tomes that are kind of intimidating to read through. I mean, I've got, I, the only reason why I finally started reading Inquisition is because Guillaume is running a play-by-post for us and I need to know this, the, the setting. <laughs> I need to know what rules he's changed. Mm. You know, I, I did a little proofreading for Ready Fight, so I have a, a copy of that. But besides what I did for proofreading, I haven't read much of it because it's 100 pages. Mm. And so whatever you want to do, whether it's large or small, people are going to want it. Mm. And my second piece of advice is do what you want or do what you already know, not what you think other people want. Mm. Because with Zephyr Knights, like I said earlier, that that was my one unique thing in my home game. And the published version that you can get on Foundry is the technically the fourth iteration, but more like a finessing of the third iteration. Mm. So it, it went through quite a lot from the initial idea up until where it currently is. Like I said earlier, based on that feedback from my players, you know, figuring out what works, what doesn't, why is this going the way it is? And so we kind of, it evolved through playtesting. Mm. 
And I was like, these people have all this cool stuff, but it's all standalone with the exception of a few adventures for Android. And I think there's one for uh, Taranoff. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there because, you know, people might like it. And as of the day of recording, I've sold 45 copies of Zephyr Knights. Mm-hmm. There have been 355 downloads of archetypal species. Wow. Only 62 of which are paid. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, I wanted to make sure that archetypal species was there available for anybody who wants it. Yep. It's been downloaded over 300 times. That's, mm. that's a lot of people who have act who have at least looked at it, if not actually spent money on it, which, like I said, I'm not doing it for the money. If you want to, go ahead and give me money for it, but you don't need to. Mm. And I would like to um, take a moment, if I may. I had recently gotten a very nice uh, donation for Archetypal Species that was a lot more than the 295 I was asking for. Mm-hmm. So whoever you are, my mystery patron, if you're listening, thank you so much. You are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Okay, so then I got to follow this up with the burning question, brother. What is next for you and the Foundry? Well, like I hinted at earlier, um, as soon as the Expanded Player's Guide comes out um, and I have a chance to digest the vehicle rules, I will hopefully be getting back to my vehicle supplement. Mm -hmm. Because just like with Archetypal Species, the EPG has a specific page count limit, so they can only do so much. And my vehicle, what I currently have for uh, the vehicle supplement, is a lot more advice and less number crunching mm-hmm. because vehicles are kind of a a big nebulous thing. There's not a lot of page count dedicated to it um, in the core book, and it's probably going to get as much as possible, but not as much as they would have liked in the EPG. So just discussing what makes for a good vehicle, you know, simple things like if it's a civilian vehicle, don't give it armor because armor means it's military. Mm-hmm. Depending on your setting, um, governmental regulations might limit weaponry because like we see in Star Wars a lot, which is a big pillar of the the space opera community mm-hmm. is even personal vehicles have like four different guns on them. So not all settings allow heavily armed civilian vehicles, you know, might limit what types of weapons you could have or, you know, personal defense weapons might be limited to short range only or things like that. You know, it it's all about coming up with the idea of uh, what the vehicle is before actually making it, which is one of the big things that I added to archetype creation in archetypal species is what I call the capsule, which is before you get down to any of the nitty gritty of the numbers, write two or three sentences about what the archetype is, what the species is, what are their strengths and weaknesses, what are they known for, and then use that capsule as the building block for everything that has numbers associated with it. Mm-hmm. So think about it in a, you know, in the narrative, what does it do? And then add the mechanics onto it. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, I hope to be doing um, another micro supplement um, along the same size as archetypal species for equipment, because we've got six pages for gear, weapons, armor in the core rulebook. And so I've actually been working on that recently. And so I hope to have I hope to do a lot of micro supplements that Mm -hmm. are small and easy to digest, but are you know kind of important to the game. Mm. Definitely. 
So I, I want my name to be associated with must be purchased or must be downloaded for any GM making their own set, setting mm. because I, I just I, I want to be a household name. I'm vain. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an ambition for sure, dude. All right. Well, listen, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. Um, we were we were very pleased with the supplement itself. And for those of you who are listening, if you have not downloaded Archetypal Species yet, it sounds like <laughs> most of the community has. Um, but it, uh, <laughs> it's it's number three hotness on the foundry right now. And honestly, oh, it's number three, really? Mm. Yeah. As of, as of right now. Yeah. You know, w- when. When so many of us started making things for Genesis, and we had the rules available, but but even from back in the Star Wars days, and when those of us, you know, myself, Phil, others started to hack the Star Wars system before Genesis came out, you know, we didn't have these concrete rules. Mm. And archetype or species creation is so pervasively important to the fundamental balance of anything you're going to do. Mm. Having this kind of guide in your back pocket is an incredibly wise thing to do. So if you haven't already, please go check it out. Mm. And Christopher... Wonderful to have you on. We are terribly excited for what is to come from you. So thank you. As am I. (laughs) (laughs) So if you are a developer and you've uh, got something out there that you want us to know about or want the community to know about, send us an email to forgedenesis at d20radio.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Speaking of which, I know a few people have used that email to send us a few questions, Chris. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I think it's time maybe to uh, hammer them out, shall we say? Indeed. We're going to call that segment Under the Hammer. Under the Hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules and content creation and, of course, play. We are continuing to get a lot of questions from our listeners, so thank you to all those who are firing them off at us. Uh, They are... Absolutely amazing, absolutely awesome, uh, but we want more. So keep them coming. Send it to us on any of our platforms or via email, which is simply forgedenesis at d20radio.com. So, Chris, would you like to take us through our first question? Yeah, this one came in via Martin Dawson, a.k.a. the Lonely Sand Person, via email. He says, hello, GMs. Hello, Martin. Um <laughs> I have one big question that's been bothering me about creating new settings. How much we seem to be getting this question asked again and again in some form or fashion, right? <laughs> How much do you think it's appropriate to crib from other FFG products? It seems like it would be difficult to create, for example, a fantasy-based setting without borrowing a number of basic talents from Terranoth, not to mention the entire alchemy system. It would certainly feel bad to publish a setting that requires another setting to reference all the content. In some cases, I could see tweaking it to be, quote-unquote, different enough or approaching the same concept in a different way. But what could you even do with, for example, finesse? It's not a lot of design space there. On that note, do you see anything wrong with reprinting the core rulebook talent under a new name for flavor purposes? Thanks, the Lonely Sand Person. Now, this is a question that comes up quite often, as you say, and it's certainly one that I've asked myself um, when uh, the foundry was only in its infant stage. Um, And the basic answer is anything that is in the core rules, you cannot reprint. Anything that's in a setting existing already, you cannot reprint. The easiest way to refer to anything is at the start of your product, basically say what people will need to have to be able to use this product. 
And there is nothing wrong with saying you will need to have the core rules and you will need the Terranoth setting or you will need all of the three current settings that, that are out there or, or whatever else. I'm sure that eventually somebody's going to um, put in that they will need the uh, ready fight setting, uh, providing they've got permission from um, Keith, obviously. Um, but those sorts of things that you have to do. When it comes to talents, for example, you have to put them in a succinct table, um, just like they've got in the Terranoth book, of what talents are going to be available from the core rules. They don't repeat uh, the talents that are in the core rule books, and neither should you. Uh, the same thing also applies to weapons and things like that. However, that's a little bit different, and I think we answered this in a previous episode. But with weapons, you can put in axe or great axe or, or whatever else and put their stat line in there. But what you can't do is put in the exact text that appears in Terranoth, for example. You have to create your own text. And if there isn't any text, just put a star or a cross or whatever else to say, see description in Realms of Terranoth or whatever else. And look, Martin, you say you, you say you, you, you would certainly feel bad publishing a setting that requires another setting to reference all the content. Why? Don't don't why why would you feel bad about that? Mm. Let's 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 be realistic for a moment here. If you think for a hot second that anyone who is buying a fan produced piece of content off the foundry does not already own the Terranoth setting, you're deluding yourself. <laughs> <laughs> They're they're we're we're going to trust me. They're they're, they're just going to yeah. okay. So yeah. so don't feel bad about that. Um and 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 number two, uh, it it's it, it's it's almost an homage if nothing else. Mm. Now he did ask a couple specific questions uh, that you answered very well, Huli. You know mm. it's like yeah, there's going to be fantasy talents in there. Just say hey, reference these from Tiranoth. Put them in a table. So yeah, these are the talents you want to use. They're they're in Tiranoth. You mm. use them. Okay. Yep. As far as it's not even a it's it's not even a reskin. It's it's just a, it's just a refiling. You asked specifically about um, reprinting core rulebook talents under a new name for flavor purposes. Is there anything wrong with that? Yes, there's two very important things wrong with that. The first is even if you change the title, you are still reprinting the text from a core rulebook, and that could get you in trouble. Mm. Okay, um, so just don't do it. Uh, you'd be far better off just referencing that talent and say, yeah, he uses this talent. Okay. The second reason that you, you that, that it's wrong with reprinting that is, as we kind of said this before, people don't want to pay for content they already have. True. The best case scenario is that you come up with something brand new, really different. But sometimes, like you say, with finesse, there's not much you can do with that. Mm. So don't do anything with that. Just reference the talent yeah. and be done with it and focus that writing, beautiful, big writing brain you have onto other pieces of new content. Mm. And as we've said before, when it comes to settings, make sure that, you know, your energy is being put into the fluff behind it because that's the unique stuff. That's the stuff that people are buying the product for. So, um, so yeah, make sure that your, your focus is in that direction rather than creating, you know, new talents. If you can, great. You know, they'll be added to, um, to, to people's games, you know, quite well. Uh, no doubt, as long as they've got enough playtesting. But, um, yeah, just um, do it that way and I think you'll be fine. Fully mm. agree. All right. 
Do we have another question? We do. And we have a question from Douglas Brundin. Um, Brundin? Brundin? I'm terrible with names. Um, So uh, Douglas says, My friends and I are huge fans of the Genesis narrative dice system. However, one of the things we wish Genesis did better is leveling up character progression. I hate to make the comparison. We do it all the time, so don't panic. I hate to make the comparison, but D&D does leveling up progression very well, but in our opinion, doesn't do narrative roleplay as well as Genesis. Do you gentlemen have any ideas on how to make leveling up Genesis feel more amazing? Long-time listeners and fanboys, Z-Man, Derek, Vovoid, and Kurian. And I've <laughs> probably butchered all of those names, but that's okay. <laughs> So let's start by saying, guys, I think you realize this problem yourself. This isn't a game that's about leveling up. Mm. The fact that we even use the term leveling up is a relic of the D&D system. Mm. Um, there are no levels. <laughs> now, now <clears throat> how do you, so, so, so that, that's, that's the thing. And there's some fundamental expectations here that we got to talk about. Here's the bottom line. If I have two PCs in Genesis and they both have 100 earned ex- earned XP and one of them has put all of that into talents and some skill ranks and the other has sat on 80 of it, both of them are still going to be relatively effective in terms of what they do. Mm. You're not going to see a huge difference. And this is one of the major differentiators that – is the reason you're not seeing that character progression distinction because the system functions wonderfully well at disparate character progression levels. You can take a beginner character and throw them into a party of 300 earned XP characters, and they may not have as many tricks up their sleeve. They may have a wound or strain threshold that's a few points behind, but they're still going to hold their own. Okay, and that is something you cannot say for D and D at all. Okay, and that type of flexibility is kind of inherent in the system. Now, if this is important to your group, which it sounds like it is, um, a few interesting ways uh, to make character progression. I don't want to use the term leveling up because there are no levels. (laughs) Ways to make character progression feel more interesting or very exciting. There are two ways that I can personally recommend that I have used in my games, both GMing and playing in Genesis and Star Wars systems that may work for you. It really works well for us. Um, The first and foremost is to have the out-of-character moment of glory cheese expression. And so I'm I'm playing in a game right now. Uh, you know this, Huli, uh, mm. with GM Chance. Bradshaw is our GM. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a Star Wars game, and I'm playing. I'm playing a Wookiee performer <laughs> named Tupaka, um, who's fantastic. It's a really fun game, and at the start of each session, after we come to the table and we've applied all the XP that we've earned from our last session. Mm. Bradshaw takes a moment. He goes around the table. He's like, oh, my gosh, every single one of you, tell us what's new with your character. How did you spend your XP? 
And everyone goes around and proudly exclaims the new badass talent they have or the new set of skill ranks they've obtained and what they can do better now. And and it's more than it's more than just that. It's not like, yeah, I got an extra rank in in, in charm. It's oh yeah, I'm rolling three yellows now for charm. <laughs> and the okay. <laughs> so having that moment of out of game expression can really go a long way towards helping with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another thing, if you guys have a more narrative bent and you really enjoy the narrative nature of the system, is taking time after XP has been spent at the table in character to narrate out training. Mm. Have the um, have each character or each player describe narratively what their character has done in the intervening time and how they've trained up this new ability or skill set they have. You know, make it almost like a montage. <laughs> You know, which can work really well to building into a lot of narrative uh, NPCs and characters as mm. well that may be mentors to certain players and, and characters and how they learn that ability. Mm. So those are two simple suggestions I have for you. Yeah. And if people want an example of that, that's actually how Tom does it in Shared Saga's podcast. Yes, he does. If you, if you want to listen to a specific episode, I think it's episode 17 uh, is one that I've re- recently listened to and they've done exactly that how they've spent their XP and they've used it in a narrative sense, how they've done certain things as part of downtime. So definitely something to look at. The other thing just very quickly um, that I will mention as well, when we talk about leveling up doesn't seem like anything amazing. Have you bought Realms of Terranoth? Because they have heroic abilities. Now, heroic abilities bump up every 50 XP. So that's every 50 earned XP, it automatically bumps up that you get another special bonus onto your special ability. So that's another way of doing it as well. Good suggestion and a good reference. Mm. All right. I think we've got time for one more question, Chris. We do. Um, this one came in from Aaron Graziano via email. He says, GM's Chris and Hooley. I'm in the process of designing a custom setting for the Genesis Foundry, and I've decided to use the careers from the core book as base templates because they fit quite well with what I was thinking for my setting and why reinvent the wheel. Mm. Good for you, Graz. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) However, I'm having a bit of a conundrum concerning knowledges for my setting. Your guys' discussion on knowledge skills from episode three was very helpful, but still left a question unanswered for me. The question is, once I determine which career should get which knowledges for career skills, how do you have starting ranks work with these extra skills? I had two thoughts on the subject. One, I replace some of the other skills from a career with knowledge skills and leave it at four free skill ranks out of a pool of eight. Mm -hmm. Or, Or two, I add two of the knowledge skills to every career and have PCs pick five out of a pool of 10. Um, I would be very interested to hear your gentlemen's thoughts on the question. Thanks. And I never listen. Oh, wrong show. (laughs) Aaron Graziano, GM Graz. Now, my first question about that is um, the PCs pick five out of a pool of 10. Are we talking 10 knowledge skills? No, 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 no. Like, so, so, so to summarize, like he's saying like, it, it, he wants to use the core rulebook careers, right? Right. Those careers are built assuming that there's just they're, one they're built skill. with access to one knowledge skill. Yeah, yeah. It's because that's knowledge. So if you're building a custom setting, but you want to use those core careers, what do you do? And and if he he's developed, you know, for example, three or four knowledge skills, like let's say, let's say did four knowledge skills for the setting. Mm, yeah. 
what does he do? Does he do skill replacement or does he go so far as to give every core career access to two of those knowledge skills and then let them pick an extra one basically? So you, you've moved the career skill list from eight to 10 in those two extra are two new knowledge skills and then they get to pick a free rank extra. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts? <laughs> okay. So first of all, do not let them pick five skills. No. Okay. Uh, uh, first and foremost, because they won't pick a knowledge skill. They'll just get five free ranks and non-knowledge <laughs> skills. Okay. That's what they'll do. They're players. Yeah. And even then, I still you, you, listen. You've got a very strong statement about not reinventing the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel here, Grass. Keep it. Keep it to four and eight. Okay. In terms of your free ranks, and then a total career list of eight. Okay, do that. But that means you're going to have to do some replacement, yeah. right? It it just it just means that unfortunately, you're not going to be able to use those core careers as you, as you as you wished. Now, another option and something I've seen and it worked well. And this is a rule that's unique to your setting. Is you say, "Look, guys, in my setting, I want you to use these core careers. They're in the core rule book. Here are the pages they're on. If your career has knowledge as a career skill, you need to substitute one of the knowledge skills from this setting in that career and you let them have the choice. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then optionally, you can also say, look, and if you don't have a knowledge skill on your career list and you would like one, you may choose another skill and substitute it with a knowledge skill. Give it the, give the player that choice. You know what I mean? Mm. That's, that's the best example. So yeah, you do want to do substitution, but if you want to keep very pure to the core rulebook careers, then adding a, like a little note there, an extra rule in your setting might be an easy way around that if you don't want to go through the effort of basically remaking entirely new careers that just have kind of one skill difference, basically. Yep, that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something we didn't cover too terribly uh, succinctly or, or, or specifically when we talked about knowledge. Yeah. You know, we, we were working on the assumption that, hey, you're just going to be building your own careers. There you mm. go. Um, but but no, what if you want to use the existing from the core? Mm. It's, it's a very good question. It's mm. a very good question. I'm mm. glad you asked it. Mm. Excellent. So if you have um, any more of those sorts of questions, let us know. We want more <laughs> of them, as I said before. Um, so that basically brings us to the end of a show because I'm running out of steam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. That does bring us to the end of yet another show, yeah. Mr. Lee. Sadly, yes. And I, for one, will be wistfully counting the hours until our very next episode. So, like many listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> I can't tell whether you have too high an opinion of our listeners or too high an opinion of this show. <laughs> uh, Chris, I'm shocked at your presumption that our Steam listeners are not just as invested in this show as I am. I'm shocked, in fact. So perhaps like me, they should um, go back and listen to some of our previous episodes to tide them over. And if you are one of those that, uh, that do that, please let us know how we did. We'd love to get some feedback from you. Well, you're not wrong on that front. We would love to get your feedback. Plus, as Huli said, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer about developing your own content for Genesis, being a GM or a player, or just general questions about the rules themselves, you can send us an email to forgegenesis at d20radio.com, or you can post your questions via social media, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit, by searching at Forge Genesis. 
Yeah, also, I've been having some great conversations on the D20 Radio uh, Discord channel, particularly about Gamination Con as well. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of fun that are going on there. I'm trying to stay as active as I possibly can, uh, engaging with fans um, on the, uh, the various pages that, uh, that the show belongs to, um, as well as the Genesis Community Facebook um, page as well. And a lot of time is going to be spent um, on, the, uh, on our own Discord channel, uh, which will be a part of the Patreon as well. So um, please um, pledge to that um, if you have a few dollars. Uh, we would love that, and um, you know you can be part of our ever-growing community. So, um, so yeah, thanks. Absolutely. And again, through that community, you can give us feedback. You can give us questions, and who knows? The things you talk about might be the stuff we want to talk about on the show. <laughs> so again, please feel free to reach out to us on any of those mediums. And guys, you can also join the even larger discussion in the D Twenty Radio Facebook group, where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. <laughs> and don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and even Spotify. Mm. You can also visit us on our website at forgegenesis.com. So, Huli, mm. what can listeners expect in our next episode? After the incredibly positive response that uh, and feedback that we've had on our last episode about magic, we're going to jump back onto that train for a bit, uh, diving deeper into the magic system of Genesis. Indeed we are. We're going to continue to demystify the mystical by expanding our core rules discussion into the discussion of spending narrative results on magic checks specifically, <laughs> and also magic skills, how they can and should be associated with careers. This discussion is going to be the final piece before we can actually dive into truly reskinning the magic system into something totally different. That sounds exciting. But Chris, yes. aren't we forgetting about magic implements too? No, we're not. <laughs> uh, we will get there. But that show will discuss the creation and use of implements as well as reskinning them for alternate systems of magic-like capability. So we kind of need to talk reskinning the core magic mechanics first. That's fair enough. Indeed. I can't wait for that discussion. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> I'm just super eager. Obviously. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you will join us next time for our wonderful discussion on magic as we continue to explore the Genesis RPG. I'm Jim Hooley. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm Jim Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Thanks again for joining us, and remember the Forge Podcast helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge at Genesis Podcast is a proud member of the D20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. 